July 1937, the world's most famous woman pilot disappears during her attempt to circumnavigate the globe. In 1988, the International Group for Historic Aircraft Recovery, a small nonprofit known by its acronym TIGER, began a science-based investigation of the Earhart disappearance. Decades of forensic research and a dozen South Pacific expeditions have now produced hard evidence from multiple disciplines to provide the long-sought answer to the riddle. In this series of conversations with Joan Sachs, Tiger Executive Director Rick Gillespie takes us step-by-step step through the adventures, the setbacks, and the discoveries that uncover the evidence that has solved aviation history's greatest mystery. Hi, I'm Joan Sachs. Like many of you, I've read newspaper and magazine articles, and I've watched television documentaries about Tiger's adventures and discoveries. As a member of Tiger, I've participated in research, and I know there is so much more to the story that has never been told. I've known Rick Gillespie and his wife, Tiger co-founder Pat Thrasher, for many years. So when Rick asked me to help him bring the behind-the-scenes story of Tiger's Earhart expeditions to the public in a series of podcast episodes, I enthusiastically agreed. Over the years, there have been 12 Tiger expeditions to the South Pacific, and we've organized the podcast into seasons. To follow the progress of the investigation, you'll want to listen to the episodes and seasons in order. For newcomers, we make it easy to catch up with the story so far by publishing a compilation at the end of each season. Now let's get to the next episode. This episode is a compilation of the four episodes in season six. Hi, Rick. At the end of season five, you were talking about how the funding that you were hoping for came in a really unusual way. So as we begin season six, can you tell us about that? Yeah, I will. But before we do that, I want to talk about a change we're going to be making in the podcast. Oh, fun. Yeah, well, you know, the way we've been doing this since we started, gosh, this was months ago, was very low tech, <laughs> very, very simple. We have an iPhone and a couple of clip-on mics, and we sit at the dining room table in Tiger headquarters, and we have our conversations. Yes. And it's fine, but it has been so successful. It, it's so great that, that people have responded the way they have. We want to give them an even better experience if we can. So we've invested, Tiger has invested in new, more sophisticated equipment. I mean, this is a quantum leap in, <laughs> in the sophistication. And because of that, there's a learning curve about learning how to use it. I'm, I'm still learning how to use the, the mixer and the sophisticated microphones. And, and so we're not forth. using it this week. <laughs> and we're not using it this week because I haven't gotten there yet. You know, we're we're, we're sitting here right now looking at booms hanging over our heads and big mics and, and a mixer that we're not using. <laughs> we're talking into the iPhone again. But by the next episode, stand by, folks. You know, it, it, should, it should be better. At least I hope. So 
anyway, uh, let's uh, let let's talk about what happened. You know, the, the last time we were talking about the NICU four preliminary expedition that was conducted in secret because we had this cruciform object that we hoped was a Lockheed or Electra in the bushes that showed up in old aerial photographs. But when we got there, there was no airplane in the bushes, of course. And there was also no debris back in the beachfront vegetation, the scavola, even though we hacked at the underbrush for weeks looking for it. We, mm. we hoped stuff may have washed up in there, but it didn't. And there was a, another grave that we excavated, and it turned out to be the grave of a toddler. But while we were at the island, we got a satellite phone call from our other team that was in Fiji looking for the bones that had been sent there in 1940-41. They hadn't found the bones, but they did find a woman who had been the daughter of the island carpenter. Her name was Emily Sikuli. She was now living in Fiji. She had not seen the bones that her father put in the box that he built, but she had been under the impression that those bones were found under the airplane. And we hadn't said anything to her about an airplane, that we were looking for an airplane. She said, oh yes, there was an airplane, there was airplane wreckage out on the edge of the reef, up, up, uh, north of that shipwreck. And my father pointed, pointed it out to me one day when I was out uh, with him, he was looking for wood to cut. And he pointed out this rusty old wreckage out on the edge of the reef and said it was the wreckage of an airplane that the fishermen had, had come across. Well, shoot, you know. Now we had a, a witness to airplane wreckage on, on the edge of the reef. And she marked the map where she said it had been. So that was, that was a big step forward. And really the, the only positive thing that came out of that whole expedition. Now we needed to, to move forward with, uh, with the NICU 4 trip. What we wanted to do when we went back to the island was do a detailed search of the place on the southeast end of the island where we had looked for and ultimately found a tank that had been reported by a Coast Guard veteran and which we had hoped would be an Electra fuel tank, but turned out to be just a, a water tank of a type that we had seen in the, in the, in the native village. Ah. And we had dismissed that site as being unimportant. Uh, it didn't turn out to be what we hoped it would be, so yeah, no big deal. And we just kind of written it off. We called it the the seven site because there was a natural bare coral feature where no vegetation grew that was in the shape of a numeral seven and and showed up in aerial photographs. So okay, it's an easy way to identify it. It's just the the seven site. The aerial photographs were the ones from the forties. Right. Yeah. Well, 50s. we had we had several aerial photographs. There was actually one aerial photograph that was taken by the Navy during the search for Earhart in 1937. Ah, and it was there then. And the seven is visible in that ah. photo. And then we had photos that were taken by uh, a New Zealand survey. It was actually a, a British aircraft launched 
from HMS Leander. It was a cruiser. It was a little supermarine walrus, it was called. It was an amphibian. It was launched from the cruiser. And they did a series of aerial photographs over the island in 1938. Oh, is that before they colonized it? In, yes, in it, it, for that? The, the flight took place on December 1st, 1938. Wow. And the first Gilberty's work party came to start clearing land for a village just a few days later on December 20th. Really? And, and it's great to have a whole series of photographs of the island before it was there was ever any human activity there. So, yeah, the seven shows up there. So over what period of time in the photographs could you still see the seven? Well, the seven shows up in the 1937 photo. It shows up in the 1938 photos. It shows up in every aerial photo that we have of the island, including later, much later, the satellite photos. Really? It, it eventually slowly went away, I want to say, not until about 2015. Really? Yeah, I mean, it was very persistent. I wonder why. Why Why now? Yes, and, yeah. and I wonder why it lasted clear so long when the all around it was so dense in the foliage. Just a function of rainfall and bare coral that doesn't support growth. Uh -huh. But what has changed is climate. This is a oh, this right. is one more impact of climate change hmm. that we we see many um, effects on the island and that's one of them. Wow! Because there's been more rain now, hmm. and there's been enough so that rain will even grow in that seven. And now you look at the current aerial or satellite photos, can't see the seven. Wow! I, I know where it was. I can see tiny signs of right. it, but. It's, right. it's gone. Interesting. And, and it, what is also, of course, gone is the extensive clearing that we did by hand. I know. I wondered about after, that. Yeah, about three different expeditions, we just cleared and cleared. But, you know, that's just stuff just bounces back. Yeah. When we dismissed that seven site as possibly being where the, the bones were found, because at, at, at the time we investigated that site in 1996, the finding of the bones was still just a rumor. We didn't know that right. it had really happened. It was just a story. But it, it was 96. In 97, we find the documentation. Right, when you went that, to Yeah, to the bones really were find, found. And then in 98, when we got the full file from the British archives, we had a, a description of where the site was, and it fit the site. Uh, we got thinking, okay, so you've got a big water tank there. We know that Gallagher, the colonial officer, was ordered to make a thorough search of the site, and we know from experience that if you're going to spend any time down there working, you need water. And maybe the tank was to provide water for the search. Yes, interesting. So maybe we need to take another look at that site and see maybe there's more there than we realize. So mm -hmm. we want to go back to that site and really, really clear it more and dig around and see what we can find. Archaeological excavation. Mm -hmm. Okay, that's what's needed. It's going to be a big job because we know it's all grown over with this horrible scabola stuff. But that's what you got to do.
And then we had a couple more graves that we had identified from apparent headstones up on the other end of the island, the northwest end of the island, that were away from the abandoned village. Didn't seem like they were part of the usual burial plots. So there were usual burial plots near the village? Down in the village, people buried their relatives on their own land. Oh. Well, you know, people in this country do that, too, yeah. sometimes. Farms. Yes, but were they little? The, were they what? The plots of land were little? I mean, it was a village, Oh, right? yeah. Yeah, they were, they were little strips of land that were assigned to different people. And that, that was the big deal for the the settlers, that, that if you worked hard and took care good care of your land, you actually got it assigned to you. Uh-huh. You had your own land. Huh which was um, very important in Gilberti's uh, culture. Yes. I very important. Then we also wanted to do an underwater search of a ledge, underwater ledge off the western edge of the reef that was would seem to be a good place that would catch debris that went over the reef edge. So we, we wondered if there might be airplane wreckage there. Right. So we were going to need a dive team and a boat that could support a dive team. Right. But fortunately, the boat that we used in, in 97 and again in 99, Naya, out of Fiji, was set up as a liveaboard scuba dive boat. Yeah, they're, perfect, they're perfect for that. And by now, we knew the owners and the crew. It was like family. Yeah. So Naya was the ship we'd want. We also wanted to do an underwater search of the lagoon bottom inside the main passage because now we had uh, indications that wreckage may have washed through the passage into the lagoon and might end up in a big sandy delta that's just inside the, the, the mouth of the passage or on the lagoon bottom just inside that. So we wanted to put divers down there. Well, okay. This whole thing was going to cost, as best we could estimate, around $300,000. Hmm. And as usual, we had no idea where the money was going to come from. Hmm. But by September of 2000, we had set dates. We're going to do this a year from then. September of 2001, we paid a deposit on Naya without knowing where the rest of the money was going to come from. But we had to... Reserve Naya for that time. Right. We selected a team of 12 people, veterans. We had learned how to select that expedition <laughs> teams by then. Yes. We figured to have 12 to 14 days on the island. Yeah, that would be enough to mm. do what we wanted to do, we hoped. We did want to minimize our time at sea because our Trips back and forth to Fiji had proved to be tiring, to say the least. Rigorous. People got <laughs> yeah. sick. People got hurt from just the the rough seas. You know, Naya's right. 120 feet, and I she bet can some of those trips just she can lay so right tense. over 45 degrees. Well, how could you do that? I mean, you can't make it shorter, can you? Well, there's one place that's closer. That's a real place. Can you get there? Like you can fly into it. Yep, American Samoa, Pango Pango. It's about two days closer to Nicomaroro than Fiji. So we'd be talking three, three and a half days at sea. Much, uh, much better. Yeah. We'd have Naya deadhead from Fiji to Pango. Meet us, meet us there. Yeah. And we could fly there via Honolulu. 
Hawaiian uh, Air ran flights. Oh, from, interesting. From Honolulu down to uh, to yeah, to Pango. Then we would, of course, we we had to have a Caribus representative with us to stamp our passports. And then the guy assigned to us was uh, Monica Tetabo, mm-hmm. our old friend that had been with us yes. before. We arranged for Monica to fly from Tarawa to Fiji to Honolulu. <laughs> so Monica was going to meet us in Honolulu. But we still had the question of how are we going to fund this thing? Where's the money going to come from? And of course, we publicized the fact that we need money, hoping some well somebody ne- would be interested. Nice and person would yeah. step forward. Yeah. And, well, our archaeologist had a pretty good reputation in the archaeological community, and he did little presentations and talked about what we were doing. And one of his contacts in the archaeological community had contacts with a guy in New Mexico who also was interested in archaeological projects. His name was Mike Kammerer. Hmm. Now, Mike was a guy who had made a whole lot of money in television by bundling advertising time and selling it. It was kind of a new thing. I'm not real clear on how it all worked, but I know it made him... It worked well for him. (laughs) It made him filthy rich. He contacted our archaeologist, and Kammerer said he was interested in sponsoring or contributing. Well, our archaeologist said, you need to talk to Rick. And he passed him off to me. Well, I called Kammerer, and it turned out that he was not interested in sponsorship. What he wanted to do was acquire the commercial exploitation rights to the expedition. Really? Yeah. Did, he, did you even have them? I mean, is that, well, was that an Well, they exist. <laughs> uh, the, the rights exist. So we, previously, Tiger. Well, well, previously we had sold exclusive media coverage rights. Right, when people, okay, the photographers, a network can come along and yeah. shoot the thing, and only that, of course, it's easy to be exclusive on Nicomarara. Yes, <laughs> true. <laughs> Nobody else is going to be there to compete with you. But Camera, having reviewed our evidence, was convinced that we were going to go there and find the Earhart airplane. Ah. And that that was going to be just that fact was going to be worth a lot of money. He was going to shoot video of the whole thing, and he was going to be able to exploit that. Did you say yes? Well, we said it's an interesting idea. Let's <laughs> let's talk about this. Hmm. Now, this is happening in late September of, of 2000. Right, a year ahead. In October, the 9th to be exact, Pat and I met Mike Kammerer at the Mayflower Hotel in Washington, D.C. <laughs> he shows up. And a big cowboy hat and cowboy boots. Where is he? <clears throat> well, he's he's from New Mexico. Oh, right, you said that. But he's 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 a big Western cowboy. He he actually had a, a company called uh, the Code of the West Foundation, oh. and it's all about the uh, values and ethics of the West. Okay, <laughs> you know? like. Gunfights and well, uh, yeah, it's it's you know, the <laughs> the Wild West ethic. You know, he was really into that. Hmm. Whatever. Yeah. <laughs> so we we sit down in a hotel room with him <clears throat> for the whole day, and we hammer out a deal. 
he's going to put up $300,000 and we're going to use that to do our expedition. Right. We get, we still have complete control of the expedition. He doesn't have control over any of the research or the expedition itself, but he gets to, to film it and then use that film and use whatever we find to make TV shows or whatever he wants to do with it, to, to make money with it. And of course, he's hoping to make millions of dollars out of this. And the deal was that once he got his $300,000 back, Tiger would get a percentage of the net profits according to a schedule, you know, 3 million to 6 million, we get this percentage, 6 million to 10 million, and up from there. I mean, it's pie in the sky, but whatever, it's great. Well, that was his, that's what he did, that's That's, right. So he's had some success. Yeah, I mean, that's that's how he operated. He was a real wheeler dealer, man. He's (laughs) a little bit crazy, but uh, his money was good. And he agreed to the things that were really important to us. One of which was having control of the expedition and the science and the research. Sure. He couldn't touch that. We also said that any product endorsements, and oh, and he had plans for all kinds of product endorsements. Uh. And we were, we were gonna split that one 50-50 with Tiger. Hmm. But we said, there's gonna be no tobacco endorsements, no booze, no alcohol of any kind, no gambling, and no firearms. Hmm. That's we're not going to do any product endorsements in any of those categories. And he agreed to that. Okay, that makes sense. And we concluded that agreement right then. I mean, he we typed it up and we signed it and we had it notarized and we had a check for three hundred thousand dollars. Wow! Bang! Just like that. Wow! Yeah. So we get home, we're feeling pretty good about this. Really? You know, now we can really move forward. We can make our payments to Naya. We can get our equipment in, in order for And the phone rings and it's Mike. Okay, it's Mike. First thing we need to do is get you and Pat moved out to California. What? <laughs> That's what I said. What are you talking about? He says, no, no, you need to be in L.A. That's where it's happening because we're going to do these TV shows and we're going to go. I said, Mike, I hate L.A. There is no way I'm going to go to L.A. We're going to move to L.A.? You're out of your mind. Oh, okay. Well, I had some other ideas. Okay. What are your ideas, Mike? Okay, so we're going to be out there on that island. Yeah, and you're going to be hacking away and doing your thing. And you're going to do your thing the way you want to do it. But I want to... I want to be there with a film crew and film an episode of Survivor oh, at the same time you're doing that. I said, Mike, do you have any idea what you're talking about? Oh my Just gosh. logistically putting a television yes, crew to film. From an insurance standpoint. Reality. All those people out there. And you, you need a, your separate boat. And I don't think it's a good look for us, Mike. <laughs> He said, no, 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 it'll be fine. You should send him to the next island over where all the guano was. Yeah, well, he, <laughs> yeah. So he, he, he looked into that, and uh, after a while, he says, you know, maybe, maybe that's not going to work. Okay, <laughs> we'll do something else. Um, He's got a great imagination. Oh, yeah, yeah. Hey, how about we, uh, I, I fly in in a flying boat, and we land in the lagoon. And I'll have a, a model with us, and she'll be there on the island, mm-hmm. and we'll 
film a thing with, with her on the Oh my. I said, Mike, where are you going to get a flying boat that can fly from wherever to Nicomororo? He says, well, what, what kind of flying boat would do it? I said, that's the problem. There just aren't any flying boats readily available anyway that can fly from the closest real place, Samoa, 600 nautical miles to Nicomororo and return unrefueled. Right. And you're not going to be able to refuel at Nicomororo, even if you position fuel there, because you can't get the flying boat up close to shore because the the, the shorelines are way too shallow. The, there's just no way to do this. <laughs> oh, no, we'll we'll figure it out. And so he, he gets back with me a couple of weeks later. He says, I got a PBY. He got one? He says, I... And when did they manufacture those? Oh, PBYs were manufactured from 1935 on up through the end of world war almost the end of world war ii there so. are some pbys <laughs> a very few pbys around and he found one that was oh, for gosh. sale somebody sold him a pby it was in california someplace wow and he says uh, yeah uh, i it was it flyable needs a little work oh no but uh, I'm, I'm going to have it completely refurbished, and it'll, it'll be great. I said, oh, wonderful. Okay. I wonder when it flew last. I don't know. But as it turned out, of course, he got into it, and this thing was a complete wreck. Oh. And it was going to cost an ungodly amount of money <laughs> to put this thing in anything like airworthy condition. Wow. So he abandoned that idea, too. But he wasn't done. He said, no, we, we need to get me and our model onto the island ahead of you guys to secure the site. <laughs> oh, well, how are you going to do that, Mike? We're going to parachute in. I can get a oh. plane to fly over and we're going to... Yeah, I, I do skydiving, so we're going to parachute in. Oh, this, this is just <laughs> crazy. He has a model in mind who's agreeable I, to all this. He probably did. Yeah. And I probably knew at the time, but by this time I was just, what the heck are we gotten ourselves into here? As it turned out, none of this happened. We went ahead and went forward with our expedition. Mm -hmm. Did he go? No, no, he didn't go. At all? He didn't go at all. Oh, wow. In what way was he satisfied? Like, did, did he, was he send a... people? He wasn't. He just, none of his Did ideas. Did he arrive at the fact that he couldn't go? Or? Yeah, yeah. He, oh, he, he finally acknowledged that, look, this is a whole lot harder than I thought it was. <laughs> Which is what I end up telling everybody that gets interested in this hmm. thing. It's a whole lot harder than you think it is. <laughs> so, but he, he acknowledged that. When it was all over, um, and this was a, probably a year later, it was all over. There was an article in Outside Magazine about him uh -huh. and what a character he was. And this was one part of what they wrote about. And they called me on the phone. And the guy who wrote the article said, well, you worked with Mike Cameron. I said, yeah, I sure did. And how would you describe Mike? And I said, well, the phrase that comes to mind is loose cannon on a rolling deck. Oh, my. <laughs> and he actually did you... he... I was going to say, did was he alive still? Yeah. <laughs> and he used. Yeah, and he gosh. used the guy used that in the article, and that. Guy, I mean, it's a great line, but was he mad? Yeah, I got a phone call from Mike. I thought you <laughs> he did. He was pretty upset. 
But oh, that's you know, not how he wanted. His th- that was portrayed. really not the way he wanted to be represented. <laughs> but I mean, that's and by that time, you know, I didn't care what my camera he cashed thought. his check. And, the, he, a, and we had lived up finished. to our we had lived up to our end of the deal, and I never wanted to see my camera again. <laughs> and he, oh, he did something else. He did in this whole run up to the expedition. He said, okay, after you get out there and find the airplane and find Amelia's bones and her DNA, um, we're going to make this fantastic film, but we're going to need a Lockheed, a flying Lockheed Electra for this film. And uh, it needs to be just like Amelia Earhart's. And there's only one of those in existence. It's the one that Linda Finch flew around the world to recreate Earhart's flight in 1997. Uh. And that airplane was for sale. Oh. And Mike bought it. He did? He bought another he, airplane? He bought the electric. Oh he, he bought that airplane and had it ferried to Santa Fe, New Mexico and stuck it in a hangar. Oh. And, okay, I've got it there when, when we make our big film. Okay, good. Well, wow. ultimately, of course, it never got used in any film. It never left that hangar. Mike died a few years later, and his daughter sold the airplane to the Museum of Flight in Seattle. Oh, good. And that's where it is Great. today. Great. That's how it got there. Yeah. But, I mean, Well, it was I'm kind just... of glad he's not still around to comment about this. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> right. <laughs> I think we're safe. <laughs> we're probably safe. Oh, my. That's okay. all crazy. All this craziness is going on, and we're trying to put together this expedition and get on with our work. And then something else comes up right about that time in the fall of 2000. I get a phone call from a guy from a little farming community in Illinois, ah. Hopeston, Illinois. And he says, I've, I've been reading about your work and your theory. And there's a woman who lives near me. We're neighbors, and I know her. We've been friends for a long time. Her name is Betty Brown. And uh, she says that she knows what happened to Amelia Earhart because she heard Amelia Earhart calling for help on the radio when she was a 15-year-old girl living in St. Petersburg, Florida. Wow. And she has a notebook she kept by her radio and she jotted down what she heard Amelia saying and she's still got that notebook. Wow. And I said, whoa. Okay, we had, we had heard from other people, many of them women, older women, who had claimed to have heard Amelia Earhart calling for help on their home radios. I mean, there were reports at the time. Oh, yeah. All over. Yeah, there, there, there were many reports that showed up in the newspapers and then other people that didn't show up in the newspaper had contacted us and, and said, yeah, I, I heard that too. And we investigated them and, and they were credible. Uh, they, they weren't looking for attention or anything. But it was just, had to take their word for, for what they said had happened. But they all reported the same way of hearing these distress calls. 
they they weren't searching for Amelia Earhart on their radios. They they weren't uh, tuning in her frequency. Right. <clears throat> they were they were just cruising the dial on their shortwave sets, as many people and and many housewives did back in the '30s. After the kids are in bed and things have calmed down, the housework's done. Just as a relaxing thing, they would search for foreign stations, foreign music. It was a very—it's like cruising the internet. Sure, now. sure. So, did anybody back? Did the public know what bands? Uh, well, she was... her her primary frequencies had been published. Okay. In the, the and they were they were high frequencies, thirty-one oh five and sixty-two ten kilocycles. They were mm -hmm. called in those days. But her radio also put out signals on harmonics of those frequencies. Now a harmonic is a multiple of the primary frequency right. and it's much higher. It could be two, three, four, five times mm -hmm. the, the frequency of the primary. They, she wasn't intending to put those out, but radios at That's that time- That's the way it worked. Well, the radios at that time were not shielded from putting out harmonics like the way they are today. That oh. wouldn't happen today. But those radios weren't shielded. And so she's just, putting out these very high frequency signals. Now the thing about those high harmonic frequencies is they're not so reliable, but when they do, they go up to the ionosphere and they bounce off the D layer, it's called, and they come down. And if you happen to be where the reception is good on those, it can come through crystal clear the, on the, from the other side of the world. Wow. The difference here with Betty Brown is that she had documentation. She had a notebook she made notes in at the time, and she still had that notebook. Wow, that's so cool. And I, I called her on the phone. Her story was that, that she had been just cruising the dial of her radio one afternoon, the way she often did, and stumbled upon Amelia Earhart calling for help. And, and she was astonished at this. Wow. Started, she, she grabbed this little notebook that she kept by the radio. She jotted down the lyrics of her favorite song. She made little sketches of glamorous women and handsome men. And it was just a, she's 15 years like old. 15 year old's notebook. Yeah, right. at the, her name at that time was Betty Clank. And she makes these notations of the phrases she can make out. The signal fades in and out, as they do. Mm -hmm. But if it faded out, she'd wait. She'd flip to another page and make some more sketches. And, and then come back in and she'd go back to the notes and she would write down some more. And this goes on for an hour and three quarters. One night. One Which is, afternoon. Well, it's one afternoon, her, okay. her time. And she, she has the foresight to make notations at the top of the page. Now, this started at such and such a time and faded out at such and such a time. Wow. Oh, I came back in at this time. and then, So we, we've got all that yeah. and, and, and the notebook. Well, she was really excited about this. Her father came home from work and she said, Dad, you've got to hear this. I'm hearing Amelia Earhart calling for help. And he came over and listened. He said, my God, you're right. That really does sound. Now, her father worked for the St. Petersburg, Florida um, electrical company, oh, uh, uh -huh. power company. And so he could get real deals on um, fancy radios. As, oh, uh, and antennas. <laughs> yeah. And he had bought the family a Zenith Stratosphere, I mean, top of the line radio. 
and he had rigged up a special fancy antenna uh, from the porch roof over to a power pole and so forth. Mm -hmm. And so they were getting great stuff on their radio. But he hears this, he says, I wonder if my neighbor's getting this too. Because one thought he had is, well, what if this is like just a radio player or something? If it, uh, if it is, my neighbor will be getting it too, because he doesn't have a rig like ours. Oh, right. So he ran next door. Now the neighbor wasn't hearing anything like this. They tried to bring it up on his set, and he said they got nothing. But Betty was, was definitely getting it. Wow. And so when it finally stopped long enough so they were sure, no, it, it's over now. He took that notebook and he went down to the Coast Guard station in St. Pete and he said, you got to listen to me. My daughter has been hearing Amelia Earhart calling for help and she's got these notes and there are uh, things in here that, that might be indications of where she is and you got to get this information out. And the response he got from the Coast Guard was, no, look, other people are hearing calls like this. We're getting these reports. We're on top of it. Don't worry about it. We've got it covered. Now, how many days is this after she disappeared? As best we can connect what she wrote with what we know happened otherwise. This happened on Monday the 5th. Now, Earhart disappears on Friday the 2nd of July. Okay. So this is Saturday the 3rd, Sunday the 4th, 4th of July. Yeah. And then Monday the 5th. Hmm. It never got into the newspapers. It never. The, they, that was it. It stopped that, with that, that Coast Guard stopped. guy she saying, could, "Don't worry about it." Get anybody to pay attention to wow. this, and it, it drove Betty nuts. Later, during World War II, she got a job in Washington D.C. as a secretary, and she tried to connect with people in the Navy Department about oh. it. Couldn't get anybody to pay attention to her. Then, afterward, years later, in the 1960s. She read, that, oh, there's this guy, uh, Fred Gurner, who has written a best-selling book about the search for Amelia Earhart, how she was captured by the Japanese. And, and I know that's not right, because I know what happened to her. Wow. She was, she was on some island, and, and she, I, I've got all the... And so she wrote to Fred Gurner. Well, she actually got in touch with her neighbor, who... Uh, the, uh, the, the guy same that, also, that called the you? Same guy that called up. They got in touch with him, and he wrote to Gurner. He said, no, you've got to pay attention to what Betty says. Wow. And Gurner said, mm, I don't think so. You know, I've looked at this, and I just can't connect it with anything that I, makes any sense. So by, by 2000, Betty's retired. Her, um, her husband, a brownie, uh, has Alzheimer's, so she's caring for him. Yeah. And as far as the whole notebook and Amelia Earhart thing, she's so disgusted. She doesn't oh, want to talk to anybody about it. Sure. But the neighbor knows. And he contacted us. He says, I don't know if she'll even talk to you. Wow. But I called her and she did tell us this story. And I said, well, would you sit down with me and my wife if we came to Hopeston and talked about your notebook? She says, yeah, you, you seem like a nice guy. I, I'd talk to you. So... Pat and I traveled to Hopeston, Illinois, and we sat down with Betty in her living room, and she went through her notebook, page by page, entry by entry, with her best recollections of the backstory about. Now, here, this was Amelia talking, and she was doing this, wow. and, and the notebook is, is really interesting, because there are two people 
There's a person who says she's Amelia Earhart, a yeah. woman. And there's a man who is never identified. Huh. Uh, and Betty didn't know does she, who. Does he talk? And he talks. He interrupts. He grabs the mic. He says nonsensical things. Oh. He's, he's acting very irrationally. And Betty had the impression that he had sustained some kind of head injury oh. and was kind of out of his head. They never said where they were, but they were in a confined space. And it was very hot. And he, he needed air. He always said, I, I have air. And he was, they were concerned about rising water. And they were both obviously terrified, desperate. And Amelia is trying to get out useful information. At one point, apparently, she sent latitude-longitude information. Had Betty written that down? She had written down what she thought she heard. Okay. And it really doesn't make any sense. Uh -huh. A 15-year-old girl doesn't really have a good handle oh, on, on what it that long. And, yeah. you know, yeah. really not anything we've ever been able to decipher. She, she tried. But there are other things as Betty went through this thing. We're sitting there talking. And we're videotaping this whole thing. Oh, oh cool. And we, we've got that all on videotape. There, there were things about it. So, okay, this is this is not a radio play, because there is no narrator, there's no music, there are no commercials. No, there's there's just these two people, a woman who says she's A.E. and a man who is whose name is never mentioned. Betty didn't know who he was. She didn't know enough about Amelia Earhart. Well, she knew about Amelia Earhart. She'd seen Amelia oh, sure. yeah. in the newsreels and and on the radio interviews. So she, and she recognized Amelia's voice, but she didn't know Noonan's, she didn't know who the navigator was. She didn't know Fred Noonan's name, anything like that. Right. Just, this was just a man. Hmm. Desperate, confused, in places nonsensical. Hmm. The whole thing reads like the transcript of a modern 911 call. Oh, interesting. Yeah, yeah. So... <laughs> But there were a couple of things in it that really struck me. One was that at, at one point, Amelia apparently had some kind of injury, possibly her ankle. Betty wrote down uncle, and oh. it doesn't make any sense. Uh -huh. But right after that, Amelia, she has Amelia saying, oh, ouch, gosh darn it, crying now. Oh. And then Betty told us, she said, well, I wrote, gosh darn it, because I was 15 years old, but that's not what Amelia said. <laughs> I said, well, what did Amelia say? And she kind of looked around and said, goddamn son of a bitch is what she said. <laughs> oh. Well, okay, not many people, and certainly not Betty Clank, knew that Amelia Earhart could swear like a sailor. <laughs> I mean, that was... The people who knew her knew that when she was upset, she could turn the air blue. So that was interesting. Yes. Yeah, this, uh, um, and this sort of thing is what we call occult information. It has nothing to do with the supernatural. It's information that this person couldn't possibly know. Right. But she has anyway. And was it just that day, that one day that she heard? Yeah, yeah. She listened for her on other days, but never connected. This is the only day she did. Huh. Now, oh. did it make sense to you that they were confined in a small area? Does that <laughs> yeah, 
Yeah, because the only way this could have happened would be if Earhart and Noonan were both in the cockpit of the Electra, right. out on the reef. And the cockpit of that Electra, this would be, if it's afternoon in St. Pete, it's uh, late, late afternoon in St. Pete. It's late morning oh. in, in, the, in the South Central wow. Pacific. And in an that cockpit plane. is going to be an oven. Wow. 120 degrees, if not more. Wow. And it all made perfect sense that uh, they would be reacting the way they're reacting. But there were other things that were in the notebook that I found more than interesting. At one point, Betty recorded Amelia as saying, George, get the suitcase in my closet, California. Well, if you're stuck on a reef hoping to be rescued, what sense does it make to say something like that? Now, her husband's name, right. George, is right. George Putnam. Yeah. Betty didn't know that, but yeah, George. Suitcase in my closet. Well, there was a letter that Amelia wrote in December 1934 when she was in Hawaii about to try to fly from Hawaii to California. And she wrote a letter home to her mother, who was house-sitting for her at their new home in North Hollywood, California, oh. Toluca Lake. Amelia called these my popping-off letters in, oh. in, in case I don't show up. Yeah. She said, if, if I don't show up, uh, I've taken possession of some papers in my briefcase, in the zippered compartment of my briefcase, that mean nothing to anyone but me. If, if I don't show up, burn them. Destroy them. Well, okay, now it's 1937, and it's her husband, George, who's home in California. Maybe these papers have been moved from the briefcase to a suitcase. George, get the suitcase in my closet. The one in California, not the one in New York, where we moved from. They also have a home in New York. George knows about this. He knows that Amelia's got papers that she wants to strike. So she's letting him know. Okay, you know, huh. get the uh, things aren't wow. looking good here, and I want those papers destroyed. So you see something like this in the notebook, and is it a connection to something that Betty couldn't possibly know? Mm, how do you know? Yeah. But it's fascinating. It is. And then the other thing is that in two or three places in the notebook, Betty writes NY NY, NY NY, and I, Betty, what's what's N-Y-N-Y. And at one point she had made a notation that, or something that sounds like New York. I oh. said, what, what's this mean? She says, well, N-Y-N-Y, that's New York, New York. That's, that's how I write New York City. New York City? Uh. The British freighter, aground on the reef at Gardner Island, Nicomararo, is the SS Norwich City. It was still intact, yes, mostly. Yes, it hadn't, it hadn't been that long before. Well, it had been there for eight years. Still pretty much intact. She could get the name, the name from the ship, either there. from where it was written on the ship, or there were lifeboats that had washed ashore oh. that would have the name of the ship on mm. Amelia is trying to say something about the island she's on that will help people identify the island, because she doesn't know the name of the island. Nowhere in any of these distress calls reported by 
any of the at least nine people who heard these distress calls mm -hmm. incredibly or any of the government stations that heard intelligible signals. Nowhere does Amelia say the name of any island. Now, if you know you're on Gardner Island and you want people to come get you, yes. <laughs> what do you say on the radio? I'm on Gardner Island. Right. Gardner, 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 Gardner. <clears throat> but she doesn't do that. She's got the latitude, longitude, because Noonan can get that. And does, did, did anybody clearly hear the that long that she said? No. Okay. Other, other people who heard distress calls say they heard it and wrote it down, but they had all lost their notes that they okay. made. Okay. So we don't know. Right. But how could Amelia not know the name of the island? They've got maps. We think we know how that happened. We have a copy of the map that the U.S. Navy used during the search for Amelia in 1937. Mm -hmm. And they selected a map that includes Howland Island and Baker Island and you know, the, where, where she's trying to get to. Right. But it ends two and a half degrees south of the equator. That's, that's the bottom edge of that map. And Gardner is four degrees. Oh, wow. And on this Navy map that was used to manage the search, They've been hearing these radio distress calls, some of which Pan American has taken bearings on from Honolulu and Midway and Wake. And these lines are drawn on the map and they seem to be converging, but below the edge of the map. So what the, what the Navy does, well, the guys at the 14th Naval District, they cut the top edge off that map, turn it over and paste it along the bottom and then hand draw latitude longitude lines oh. to extend the map and then plot in the location of known islands down there including Gardner and McKeon oh. Island and these lines are crossing right mm. there by Gardner Island but which... she would not have had oh no no Amelia right. can't do that all she's got is a latitude longitude but without a map, if she had that same map, and it's the map the Navy chose to use to show Howland Island and stuff, yeah. if Amelia has that same map, she's got latitude, longitude, but it doesn't do her any good because she has no map to plan it on. Oh gosh! So she doesn't know. She knows she's on an island. Maybe she thinks it's an uncharted island. And in one of the distress calls, not Betty, but one of the others, she says. He, she's heard to say, we're on an uncharted island, small, uninhabited, we're on part land, part water. Well, yeah, they're out on the reef. Yeah. In a description. So this is looking really interesting. Yes. Betty, bless her heart, apparently we seemed like nice people because she let us borrow her notebook. Oh. And we took that home with us. Well, you're probably the first people that showed We're, a positive interest in it, it sounds like. People who took her seriously. Yeah. So we took her very seriously, but we also did our due diligence. We put researchers out of this thing. Is this a notebook that dates from 1937? Do the lyrics to the songs jotted down on other paper, on, on other pages, represent songs that were popular in July of 1937? Oh, fascinating. 
No, no, you can't take that away from me. Oh, Fred gosh, Astaire. Is that that old? That's right. And she, <laughs> Betty jots down the lyrics. Uh, how about that? Yeah, you can't take that away from me. <laughs> and it's right there in the notebook. And everything about the notebook checks out. Wow. So, geez, you know, what a piece of evidence. Mm. So we're, we're getting close. We, we've concluded the notebook. We're sitting there. Betty's sitting on the couch. And uh, we're just talking now. And the video's still running. And she, she's got a copy of uh, Fred Gurner's book, The Search for Amelia Earhart. And she's just leafing through the pages. She says, yeah, I have this. And she opens to a page that shows a picture of A.E. And, and Fred. And she sits there for a minute and she tears up. Uh. And I said, what's the matter, Betty? And she says, Rick, I can still hear them. Uh. I can still hear them. They were so terrible. I, I, uh, so, you know, and can you imagine how frustrating it must be oh. to have had that information and have no one? Yeah. So we we go home with the notebook. We check it all out. It's all incredible. And of course, Betty's checking in with me because she's really interested in how we're making out. Uh, and, and I'm telling her, look, this is this is looking good, Betty, because the things you told us, there's things in here that that track that you couldn't possibly know. Right. You know we totally believe what you're and we're acting on this we're going to be doing an expedition next year right to that place right to that reef and we're hoping to find it and she felt so good about that and she called me it was probably two months later she says rick i i can't hear him anymore oh and i said oh. betty <laughs> Somebody it's because you don't have to carry <laughs> that to anymore. <laughs> you don't else have is. to carry that by uh, yourself. Yeah, uh, we we got it. <laughs> and and she and of course she kept calling me uh, until until she died. Really? You know, uh, if she lived a few more years, she Rick, this is Betty. <laughs> uh, she was like my. So probably made like the a end grandmother, of her life. you know, we became very close. Uh, I, I loved that woman, <laughs> and and uh, Pat and I did go out to uh, later. She was living in an assisted living place, and uh, and and then uh, we'd come to visit her daughter, and we went out and visited the daughter, and Betty came, and we presented her with a plaque, <laughs> and that's so nice, and got to see her again, and uh, she was. Not doing great by that time, but she was still lucid and and really appreciated it. Oh, I'm and, sure. And uh, it it was to finally really, have some validation for yeah. It. No, it it was, and of course, she ended up being featured in NPR radio documentaries and and recreated in Discovery Channel shows. Uh, got a young woman to sit by an old radio. Oh, really? She became famous <laughs> for the whole latter part of her life. How she many more was, years did she live after oh, you did this? Oh, God. Uh, I want to say about six years. Really? Yeah. yeah. But in those six years, boy, she was... She was a famous woman, <laughs> and she got off on it. That's so it, was, it was wonderful to watch. Wow. Well, did you compile her information with the other people who had heard things? And what did, we did, did that all add up? One of our senior researchers, the man is a 
certifiable genius. <laughs> Bob, Bob Brandenburg, retired Navy lieutenant commander, but also a <clears throat> former like NSA. He was just oh, wow. absolute genius in radio propagation, developing the, the program. So he, he a computer modeled the antenna system on our airplane, and we gathered all these radio, uh, r- reported radio signals, mm-hmm. what frequencies they were heard on, where they were heard, when they were heard, by whom, what the content was, every aspect of them. And we compiled it, every, every one of them. There were 137 reported receptions. We collected information on all those and ran the numbers on them. We found 57 of the 137 to be credible. Ah, that meaning... They matched his... Well, that meaning we can't find an alternative explanation for how somebody in that place could hear this if it wasn't transmitted from here wow. on that frequency. That's compelling. And, 50, and of those 57, about a dozen of them are what we've categorized credible beyond a reasonable doubt. I mean, wow. there's just... No, and if even one of those is actually a genuine distress call from Amelia Earhart, then she did not go down at sea. She was not captured by the Japanese. And she was on Gardner Island. Wow. So tell me how, um, for what period of time did those calls actually cover? They start at 6 p.m. local time Uh on the day she disappeared. Okay. Now... She's heard what she's in local time to Gardner Island. Yeah. Or Nicomola. Well, to to Itasca, the Coast Guard cutter at Holland Island. Okay, right. Is the half an hour difference in time. Oh. So the Coast Guard is hearing her while she's in flight. Mm Mm-hmm. And we analyze those signals. And yeah, okay, that all checks out. But everybody agrees that by noon that day, July second, local time, she's gotta be out of fuel. She's got to be down someplace. Hmm. And we know that she can't transmit if she's in the water. The airplane will float, but the radios will be wet. Ah. And Lockheed at the time, the airplane manufacturer, said, hey, if you're hearing radio signals from she's that airplane, not it's not in anymore. the water. She's, she's on land. Wow. Beyond that, she has to be able to recharge the battery that the radio depends upon. And in order to recharge the battery, she's got to run an engine. And in order to run an engine, the prop's got to clear the water. So she's someplace where she can run an engine. Wow. Well, something we did. These, these signals go on from 6 p.m. on July 2nd. Now, she's got to be down someplace by 6 p.m. Until the wee hours of July 7th. Really? Yeah. And it's, it's almost always at night. Because propagation is best at night, and also it's at night that it's bearable to be in that airplane oh. because of the, the heat. So you match the tides then? Well, the... what we reasoned that if these really are credible, and she's got to be able to run an engine, she should run the engine before she transmits, because she also uses the battery to start the engine. Oh. And, and when you transmit just on a battery without the generator going, it runs, it runs the battery down very quickly. Wow. So it makes sense to start the engine 
and then send your signals. Right. So do the credible signals match times when the water was low enough on the reef for the prop to clear so she can run an engine? Well, how do we do that? Well, in order to do that, we've got to survey that reef, measure how high that the coral is on that reef versus the sea level right. at different points of the tide. In 2000, we hadn't done that yet. Oh, that was okay. that was a later trip, and we'll talk about that when uh, we get to it. That was an adventure, I want to tell you, surveying <laughs> that reef. But we get ahead of ourselves here. So Betty came forward in the fall of 2000, and it was a huge thing. We've got cameras, money, and we're preparing to go, and we're all set. To, we, we come around to um, September of 2001, and we're a couple of weeks, a week or so, from uh, heading for Hawaii to then go on down yeah. to Samoa. And Cameron says, well, okay, none of this other stuff worked. I've got to at least put a film crew on the boat with you. Oh, you've had a year, Mike. I mean, <laughs> come on. Yeah, well, I thought this other stuff was going to work, but it won't. So I, I, I'm, so I'm, no parachuting model. Now, I, I guess we're not going to parachute in. <laughs> so I'll, I'll round up a cameraman and a sound man. Okay. Cut to um, a guy named Mark Smith in Jersey City, New Jersey. Oh, who was a film producer, and he gets a call from, hey, I got a possible gig for you. You know, there's this expedition that's going to be going out to an island in the South Pacific, and they need a cameraman. You'll be gone about a month, and uh, we'll pay you your, your, your regular fee. You know, it's, it's good work, and we've got so-and-so. He's going to be a sound man. He'll go along with you, and... Um, Mark says, yeah, well, okay, yeah, I'll do that. Uh, you, you say it's going to be next month? Uh, no, it's going to be next week. <laughs> oh! <laughs> he's oh my God. It's so he's scrambling around. Is that the first time you met him? Oh, I had never heard of Mark Smith. Oh, my God. Mark Smith is now on our board of directors. I know, I know. What a, he's, what and a, Mark and I and have been all, a huge over, history together. all over the world together. But in 2000... <laughs> He's just a guy in Jersey City that got a gig. That, <laughs> well, what so, a stroke of luck. <laughs> yeah. That makes the, all of that bizarre stuff worth it. Well. To go through with him. Bizarre is our specialty. Yeah. You know? <laughs> it really seems to be. Jeez. So next time we'll talk about how the expedition actually went. <laughs> okay. And we'll do it on the new equipment. How's that? That sounds so exciting. I All can't right. wait to hear the difference. Yeah, me too. Uh, well, thank you, Rick. Thank you. Hi, Rick. When last we left you, you and your crew were about to depart Pango Pango in the American Samoa for your 2001 expedition to Niku. Take us from there. Let's see. We, we traveled to Pango from California to Hawaii and then down to Pango Pango on August 24th of 2001. And we arrived at Nicomaroro on August 30. Because so we spent a couple of days in Pango getting things sorted out. And, uh, and was Naya there already? When you... Naya had just arrived. Okay. One of the things that we did in Pango, we had... Car Burns, our forensic osteologist, our bone lady, oh. with us, 
and she wanted to do an experiment to see how the wildlife on Niku handled carcasses, dead stuff. Because we had this story about how the coconut crabs had gone off with the bones. And, well, do they really go off with bones? And how fast does something break down in that environment? Oh, so she wanted to do an experiment. So while we were in Pongo, she went to a store and bought a lamb shoulder, <laughs> frozen lamb shoulder, which she put it in the freezer aboard Naya. Hmm. And she was going to put that out and record what happened then. Okay, so that kind of thing. We are making sure we had everything we needed. So, yeah, we um, we sailed out of Pongo and arrived at Niku on August 30. We had a dive team, and we had as our medical person <laughs> a fellow named Jim Morrissey, who was Amelia Earhart's great-nephew. What? Yeah. Really? Okay, so Amelia... happen? <laughs> Amelia had a sister, Muriel Morrissey. Yes. And Muriel... Uh, married Albert Morrissey, and they had two children, a boy named David and a girl named Amelia, Amy. Uh, And David, the son, had a son, James. And Jim Morrissey (laughs) was a trained EMT and real outdoors guy. He could he could do anything, uh, wow. build anything out of anything. He was fantastic. Well, how did you hook up with him? Did I, he find you? I, I think he found us. I we didn't, <laughs> sure didn't find him, but <laughs> he read. Oh, I see you're investigating my great aunt's <laughs> disappearance, and I'm who I am. I'm this experienced EMT and wow. wilderness medical expert. And so, yo, come on, you know. <laughs> so we had Jim aboard. That was great. Yes, that sounds neat. Um, that was an incredible team, the the 2001 team. Five members of that team later served on our board of directors. Really? Yeah. Wow. I, it, it, just great, great people. The objectives we had set out for ourselves. We wanted our divers to check the reef for something we had noted earlier that year. In April of 2001, now again, this is this is the end of August. Back in April of 2001, we got our first satellite imagery of Nicomororo. We'd, ah. we'd never had satellite imagery before, and we actually contracted with a company called Space Imaging. They were just starting to do satellite imagery commercially. They'd been doing it for the government for a while, hmm. but we contracted with them. And they gave us a real break on the rate. And so we had our first satellite photo, which was great because we had always had to rely on these old aerial photographs. Right. Now we had current stuff. And it, it's like having a map uh, that, that shows you where the, every tree is. Yes. So and you can. To you have can the comparison check. from the early You, you can see how the ions change, yeah. but you can always uh, check against what you're doing now. And, okay, we're right here. I see. Okay, that's that's this spot on the satellite image because there's a clearing just like this in the in this spot. So, great. great tool. But in that satellite imagery, we saw what seemed to be anomalous pixels. <laughs> <laughs> uh, just off the edge of the, the reef flat where 
we felt quite sure the airplane had gone into the water. There were some pixels getting down to the finest detail of this satellite imagery that seemed to be the wrong color. Yeah, they, they were a different huh. color. Maybe were they in the water? I yeah, think. they're yeah. they're in the water. You can see into the water a little way in the satellite photos. Mm-hmm. Maybe twenty feet, twenty five feet, something huh. like that. Not much, but Jesus. And we were we were so thrilled to have the satellite imagery. We were trying to do more with it than you really could. I mean, that, that's <laughs> often the way with new technology. Yes. And of course, today. <laughs> Today, somebody finds the Earhart aircraft on Google Earth about once a week. Is that true? I will. I get emails, <laughs> and hey, hey, I was. It's right, <laughs> and and they'll send me screen captures and oh. coordinates and everything. And I said, no, that's the wreck of a British freighter that went aground in 1929. It's not an airplane, or no, that's that's just. A shape in the coral that happens to look kind of like an airplane, but oh, I have stood on that spot, and I can tell you that there's no airplane there. But it's consistent. Are yeah. they all looking around the coup, or are you getting them from all over the world? Oh, I get them from everywhere. Now, the the, the other the, <laughs> the, the other uh, thing that happens all the time is in New Guinea. What, what is now Papua New Guinea? Anytime somebody finds an old airplane wreck out in the bushes, it's Earhart's airplane. <laughs> and they think it's worth a lot of money. And the and I just say, no, send me a picture. Just send me a picture. <laughs> and it's always World War II stuff, of course. Mm. So, but back in 2001, satellite imagery, Was brand it? new thing. Yeah. I mean, it's wonderful. How did it, how, how did it compare to what you get today as far as quality? Not that great. Now we get down to like a few centimeters resolution on oh, wow. satellite photography. It's fantastic. Mm-hmm. But anyway, we wanted the divers to check that part of the reef sure. and see if there's an airplane there. And we they also wanted them to check the lagoon. <clears throat> right inside the main passage, there's a big delta of sand where we reasoned that things may have washed up and been buried in the sand. We're going to get that with metal detectors. And we're going to also look on the bottom of the lagoon just inside of Mm -hmm. that delta. We wanted to take a close look at the reef flat where our hypothesis said the airplane had landed to see if you really could land an airplane there. We wanted to go out there, walk around there, really take a, uh, a good hard look at it. Now, I'm an experienced pilot. Several of the others on our team were experienced pilots, and especially a gentleman by the name of Captain Skeet Gifford, who had been a United Airlines senior captain, uh, instructor, pilot, and after that had worked for NASA. Wow, that's on, a resume. On aviation, Skeet was, and still is, a, a fantastic resource. Wow. We wanted to walk around on a, that reef. We had a couple of possible graves to excavate. We had left the last time after having identified coral slabs set vertically in the ground that sometimes they mark graves. Other times, they're property boundary markers. So you've got, is this a property marker or a grave? And the only way to be for sure is to dig it up and see if there's somebody in there. Mm. Okay, so there are a couple of those we wanted to do. And then we were still trying to pin down 
where it was that these bones had been found in 1940. Bones and, and artifacts, the parts of a woman's shoe, parts of a man's shoe, and dead birds and dead turtle and a campfire, where the castaway was found, where Gallagher, the British colonial officer, had found all this. We wanted to inspect the site that we had examined very briefly in 1996, looking for this tank that we hoped was an airplane fuel oh, tank, right. but yeah. turned out to be just a water collection tank. And we had dismissed that site as being unimportant. But after we had found the British file describing the discovery of the bones, the description of where they were found seemed to match this site we call it the seventh site because of a terrain feature there, a right. seven-shaped uh, bare spot in the core. We want to take a hard look at that. Maybe, maybe that's finally where the campsite is. So we want to go to the seventh site and really do some clearing and, and archaeological excavation there. There were a couple of other things we wanted to do that weren't directly connected to the Earhart investigation while we were there. So Gallagher, as we've said before, had died on Nicomararo. Right. He had returned to Nicomararo after a visit to Fiji in, this would be in September of 1941, a year after the bones were found. But when he returned, he was very ill and the doctor that was with them, Dr. McPherson, had operated on him, but he had died on the table. And he had been buried there on the island, and a tomb had been built over his grave. It's a concrete structure. It's about, <laughs> a terrible uh, way to describe it, but it's about the size of a doghouse um, and, and about the shape of a doghouse, but solid concrete. It's, it's huh. like this tomb. And on the end of it, it had a bronze plaque that had been installed there with an inscription on it that was recorded in the, in the official records, paying tribute to Gallagher and you know, what a wonderful guy he was. And we're laying him to rest where he would want to be laid to rest and uh-huh. so forth. Except the plaque was gone. Oh, geez. It was some son of a had really? stolen that plaque and that's just not right so we had a replacement plaque made oh, that's so nice back in the states out of bronze very nicely done our replacement plaque said exactly what the original plaque said which was in affectionate memory of gerald bernard gallagher m.a officer in charge of the Phoenix Island Settlement Scheme, who died on Gardner Island where he would have wished to die on the 27th September, 1941, aged 29 years. Oh, no. His selfless devotion to duty and unsparing work on behalf of the natives of the Gilbert and Ellis Islands were an inspiration to all who knew him, and to his labors is largely due the successful colonization of the Phoenix Islands. R.I.P., erected by his friends and brother officers. And then below that, it's our replacement said, This plaque is a reproduction of the original, respectfully rededicated September 2001 by the International Group for Historic Aircraft Recovery. Oh, that's very cool. We had this plaque to install, so we wanted to do that. And we wanted to put a plaque on the main piece of the wreckage of the Norwich City, that was still standing. Oh. Um, 
which is the engine, the big triple expansion steam engine that towered 20 feet up. And massive it's thing. up on the land. And it's right out there on the edge of the reef, yeah. washed by the waves. We had a plaque made to attach to that that said, in memory of the SS Norwich City crew members who lost their lives on this reef November 30, 1929. Respectfully dedicated by the International Group for Historic Aircraft Recovery, September 2001. So we wanted to That's do so nice. that too. You know, we're, we're paying tribute to the people who had died on the island yes. uh, other than Amelia and Fred. Yeah. Okay. It's, it's kind of a haunted place. <laughs> a lot of people have died there. <laughs> we wanted to be sure we weren't some of them. Okay. <laughs> but before we went out there, I had written something to the Tiger membership, sort of explaining how we were going about this next expedition. And I'll, I'll just read what I wrote because I can't duplicate it better than I wrote it back then. <laughs> Archaeology is a plodding science. Once described in a memorable Kelvin and Hobbes comic strip as the most mind-numbing job on the planet. <laughs> Tiger's discoveries about the disappearance of Amelia Earhart and Fred Noonan, and there have been many, have not come in the form of Indiana Jones-style partings of the bushes, but in quiet moments of study and analysis. We'll consider the expedition to be a success if we are able to gather the information needed to test the hypothesis we have formulated regardless of whether the results ultimately prove to be positive or negative. We'll feel like we've done a good job if we can do that without hurting anyone. We'll consider ourselves extremely fortunate if we come back from the expedition with a few promising bits and pieces of this and that, which, when subjected to further research and testing, move us a few steps closer to the answer to what really happened out there. But as always, we'll be hoping for that whiff of gun smoke. <laughs> well said. Yeah, I still kind of like that. Well, one of the other things we were able to do on this expedition that we'd never been able to do before is provide the Tiger membership with timely updates and reports on how it's going because we had satellite phones. Oh, yes. That... And we had a system devised. Because of the time difference, I would get up oh dark 30 in the morning. <laughs> I'd get up on the top deck of night with a satellite phone at 5 o'clock, 5.30 in the morning and call Pat, my wife, back in, at that time, Delaware, and give her a briefing on what we had done the day before. Oh, that's now, so cool. Now, I couldn't send her copies of pictures we'd taken or anything. We, we, all we could do was make, make a satellite phone call, but we could give her an up-to-date report, and then it would be noontime, her time. And in that afternoon... She would sit down from the notes from our phone call and write up a daily report for the Tiger website. Wow, I, that's and, great. And have it online by that evening. So everybody, just a day behind, uh, had an updated report. Wow. Great system. And she's really good about taking <laughs> just rough notes from something she had talked to me about and turning it into, into really interesting reading. Wow. Which is good because we weren't finding anything, <laughs> as usual. You know. The divers went out and looked at these anomalous pixel areas, and there's nothing there. Uh, and a car opened up one of the graves, and now ah, there's nothing here but um, a child. Oh. We, we restored that grave, carefully put it back. Did they 
bury them just in, not in a container or box or, or had the containers disintegrated? Sometimes they seem to have just put them, like wrapped them in a sheet or something, oh, okay. which was gone. Hmm. But other, other bones were in a, a wooden box okay. that had pretty much broken down. Right. right. Interesting. But there was this one location where there was a big coral slab that really looked like it might be a headstone. And we were going to dig that and see if there was something there. And we started digging. And we dug. And we dug. And it got bigger and deeper. And it was going on and on. And there were hints that there might be something there, but maybe not. We need to keep going. And did you dig all the way around it? Like Oh, yeah. You, yeah. I mean, yeah. This, like this turned into a huge hole. Oh, jeez. And hard work. But it was right there on the northwest shoreline. We're looking out on the ocean. Mm-hmm. One day while that's going on, the cameraman Mark Smith and I were standing there. And I heard this sound, this buzzing sound. And I looked out and one of the skiffs from Naya was going past. And I turned to Mark and I said, you know, I don't like the way that outboard sounds on that skiff. And Mark says, that's not an outboard. Check that out. And he points to the horizon, and there's this little speck coming over the horizon in the air. A helicopter. From where? Well, that was our thought. Yeah. <laughs> Question, <laughs> what? And it's a little helicopter. It's a huge 500. Oh, so it had to be water-based, like based on our ship. Yeah. And within just a few minutes, uh, a ship appeared. Uh, <laughs> it had been hull down over the horizon. Right, uh, right. Okay, so we've got a little helicopter that's used by a tuna trawler to go out and spot for schools of tuna that's a job yeah and so the helicopter comes right over us and lands someplace um, back of us a little ways and we're we've got a radio and we're monitoring radio traffic and the uh, captain of the tuna boat hails our ship says hey you know uh, what are you guys doing and our captain, his name was Fritz, Captain Fritz, says, well, we're here with an uh, archaeological expedition uh, looking at the island. And um, what are you doing? Oh, we're on our way back to Samoa with a full hull of tuna. And we thought we'd just stop by and do a little local fishing and stretch our legs. And, and uh, the captain says, well, uh, that's great, but you should know that we have a Kiribati Customs yeah. representative aboard. <laughs> and of course, unspoken was you're absolutely forbidden to do what these guys were going to do. <laughs> you know, it's protected waters. You, you can't right. do that. And so there's this long silence on the radio. <laughs> and I turned to Mark and I said, Mark, we just got ourselves a helicopter. <laughs> How did you work this out with the Well, I, I jumped office. in and said, well, as you know, the Caribous regulations frown on that sort of thing, but I'm sure it won't be a problem. However, you know, we saw your helicopter come over, and for a long time we've been wanting to get some good low-level aerial photography of this island. And if it's not too much to ask, we'd appreciate it if you could kind of give us a ride. <laughs> Oh, we could do that. Yeah, that's not anything else you need. Yeah, this is fine. Sure enough, Mark and I go to where the helicopter 
is. And the pilot has been monitoring all this, and he knows the deal. Sure, guy, what do you guys want to do? I said, well, okay, your helicopter is set up uh, for just two people. It'll carry four, two in front and two in back, but the whole back end of the ship is cleared out of everything, and the doors are off. It's just bare back there. So uh, you've only got two seats. So what I want to do is I'll get in the other seat up front, and I will. you and I will go around the island, and I will show you what I would like you to show our cameraman. Then we'll come back and land. Uh, I'll get out, and our cameraman will get in, and you'll take him out, and he will shoot what I've shown you that we want to see. Okay, good plan. So I get in, strap in, off we go, and we fly around the island. I said, yo, I want to do this. We're down here. This is what we call the seven site. You can see now we have people working there, so I want to be sure we get good shots of that. We want to go down here over the southeast tip where the old Coast Guard Loran station was. We want that. Then we want to come up the other side and so forth and so on. And then I'd like to really do sort of a simulated approach like we think Earhart did when she landed. Oh, yes. Do that. Okay. He's, yeah, yeah, we can do all that. So we go back and land. I get out. We get Mark strapped in. And they're getting ready to pull pitch and get out of there. And I can't stand it. <laughs> And I go up to the pilot and I say, hey, do you mind if I just kind of get up and back? He says, there's nothing back there, nothing to hang on to, no way to strap. I said, look, <laughs> I spent a couple of years in the 1st Cavalry um, Air Mobile. I've Think you'll ridden, be okay? <laughs> I've ridden in a lot of bear helicopters, slicks. Yeah, and I'll be fine. He says, okay, it's your butt. Yeah, climb aboard. So I got up in there and off we go. And he's giving Mark the grand tour, and he's banking around, and, <laughs> and I'm grabbing for something to hang on to, but I'm just having a ball, hanging out the door, you know, <laughs> not the least. After we were through, I said, God, that was one of the craziest things I've ever done. But I'd do it again in a second. Oh, sure. Oh, it was Not more fun. fun. <laughs> so, But we ended up with wonderful aerial photography well, that we then cut together into a a, a video presentation that's available on online is an aerial tour of Nicomararo, where I put voiceover on it, explain that this is this and this is that, and, this, and uh, it, it's it was great. So that was that was our helicopter. Amazing that that happened. <laughs> it in was the just of nowhere, pure really. serendipity. Yeah. Yeah. It happens. Wow. Okay. Meanwhile, uh, back on the island. Carr's taphonomy experiment. It's what taphonomy is the breakdown of organic material. Uh. And so she's got her lamb shoulder laid out and uh, visiting it every day to see what happens to it. Sure enough, it didn't take long at all for that thing to be pretty much completely decimated so by the crab. Ha- haven't I seen time lapse photography of that? That was a later experiment. Oh, this this was the the, the first try at that. I was going to say we, I we thought didn't it have, was a pig. Actually. Yeah, yeah, well, later that's another whole story of the pig. But uh. <laughs> we'll get to that. <laughs> but this was a lamb shoulder, and it went away very quickly. And it was clear that the crabs were carrying off bones just wow. well as. Now at that time we, we had misidentified the strawberry hermit crabs. These little guys that live in a borrowed shell about the size of a baseball, mm-hmm. and they're strawberry colored. 
and they're, they're strawberry hermits. But we thought they were juvenile coconut crabs. And so we thought they were the ones going off with the bones. Well, it turns out the crabs that, that go off with bones are more likely to be the, the land crabs. Um, sometimes coconut crabs will go off with bones, but that's not all that clear. And the strawberry hermits just aren't big enough to go off with... A big bone. Uh, big right. bones. They'll, they, they will go off with, with little stuff. And they did go off with some of these pieces of the lamb shoulder. That was an interesting experiment. Hmm. And it confirmed that, yeah, okay, uh, Gallagher thought that crabs had gone off with the bones that he didn't find. And he was undoubtedly right. Back at the seventh site, things were looking good. I'm going to read from part of one of Pat's uh, daily reports during the expedition. She says, the real news is from the seventh site. First, let us recall one of the laws of expeditions. No matter how you set the boundaries of your search area, artifacts will be found just outside of those boundaries. <laughs> Usually in an area which has been used heavily as a footpath by the entire team. <laughs> and that's exactly what usually happens. Everyone had been putting all their equipment down in an area which appeared to be uninteresting. Around lunchtime, our archaeologist reached for his day pack and found the strap tangled on something. When he dislodged it, the something came with it. And she wrote, Rick repressed his first answer. Oh, it's a moose antler. <laughs> and came up with a turtle bone? Yep. Skeletal structure of a turtle. No doubt about it. Gallagher had said that there were the remains of a turtle and dead birds. Right. And we soon started finding bird bones. Oh. And many of them were blackened. Yeah, somebody's eating birds here. Cooked and then birds. we're finding fish bones. And they're little fish, not the big fish that the the settlers usually caught and ate. Mm. But these are these are the kind of fish that you might be able to catch out on the reef in a tidal pool. Right. Something that a castaway could get. Hmm. And these are little little fish and the bones are burned. Hmm. So this uninteresting section was declared very interesting. We cleared it off and gridded it in two-meter sections and really started to do a, an archaeological excavation of, them, of those sections. We came up with a plate shards, ceramic plates, like, like a, a dinner plate. Did you have enough to identify when they were from? Not at that time. Hmm. Uh, later expedition, we determined that they were from the Coast Guard station because uh, one of them had a Coast Guard logo on it. <laughs> well, that's yeah. that's clear. And we we found a number of M1 carbine shells. The the, the Coasties had M1 carbines, oh. and they would go up there and apparently do target practice, and they'd bring plates from the mess hall oh. and blew them <laughs> apart. We also found pieces that turned out to be. Uh, like radio tubes, they would they would bring burned out oh, like vacuum tubes degree. from the Loran station and, uh. and shoot at those. Uh -huh. <laughs> and, but we also found a couple of twenty two caliber brass shells. Hmm. Now, the U.S. government never issued twenty two weapons to the, the the Coast Guard, but Gallagher had a Colt Woodsman twenty two pistol. We know that from the inventory of his personal effects from after uh -huh. his death. So it looks like Gallagher was down here, and he's shooting at something. Hmm. He's got his pistol down there. I have no explanation for that. 
So the site is turning out to be very interesting. There were clams, uh, Tridacna gigantica. These are big clamshells. These clams, big enough so that you could hold one in the palm of your hand. Ah. They're about that big. Now, these grow out in the lagoon and sometimes out on the reef. And they're very difficult to extract from where they're attached. And the Gilbertese don't do that. They do eat clam meat, but when they find clams, they cut them open where they are and take the meat out right there. They'll just slip a knife in and and cut the abductor muscle. These clams, some of them had been bashed open with a heavy object, maybe just a coral rock. Mm -hmm. Others seem to have been opened from the backside, from the hinge side, kind of like you open a New England oyster. Others others show no markings at all, like they were steamed open. Oh, okay. So a variety of ways of opening them. I mean, you could use it as a bowl or as a scoop or as a... These had, after the clam meat had been eaten, Mm -hmm. had been all laid out together with the concave side up to collect rainwater. Oh, I mean, that's that's castaway behavior. Yeah. The Gilbertese have their big water tank. They don't need to do that. Right. Somebody's trying to collect rainwater in a desperate way. Right. This this is looking really good. You know, we thought, okay, we've finally solved that mystery. We now think we know where the, the bones were found, where this, this all happened, this castaways camp. Mm. One of the other things that I, I found it by accident, and most important things that you find are found by accident. It's just <laughs> the way it happens. I was working between uh, what appeared to be the castaway camp and the lagoon shore, making my way through some heavy scabola. And I came to a little clearing. And in that clearing, someone, and some somebody had done this. There's no question about it. Some person had collected up little pieces of what's called staghorn coral. Little pieces of coral, bright white, much whiter than the gray coral rubble that's around. And they had laid it, laid the staghorn coral out in a shape that resembled a letter G. This is the only way we could describe it. It wasn't exactly a G, but that's kind of what it looked like. And And on the on just, just on lying on the ground just lying on the ground how large what size it was probably two and a half three feet tall oh i mean th- this yeah. is this is not tiny yeah. this right. is this is pretty big could not figure out what the heck this yeah interesting this was and and still don't know huh. we we never found did any you, reference to any such thing did you photograph it oh yeah we have many photographs of it and you can you can actually see it in uh satellite photo <laughs> Really? Uh, I guess once you know where it is. If if you know what you're looking for. Yeah. Yeah. And we saw in in later aerial photography, we got, yeah, it's... It's amazing in all those years it didn't get covered or windblown. It's crazy. I I have no idea. A question we were asking ourselves at that site was when we initially found it in 1996, near the tank, there was a depression in the ground where it looked like somebody had tried to dig a hole, but hadn't finished digging it. Uh. And just walked away. Huh. It was just coral piled around for somebody. And we thought, well, it was somebody trying to dig a well. Yeah, what? Right. But after we saw that, no, this is likely the castaway campsite. Remember that it was a work party that initially found a skull 
human skull uh. and buried it. And then Gallagher heard that story, came back and found the rest of the bones mm. and the artifacts, and ultimately he dug up the skull. Uh, and it's and sent it back to Fiji with the other boats. So I wonder if this was the skull hole hmm. where he dug it up and never filled it back in because he didn't need to fill it back in. There was right. no... So we wanted to excavate that, that hole because if it was a skull hole, the skull had a few teeth, four or five teeth in it. Where are the other teeth? There's a lot of uh, teeth in a yeah. skull. Maybe there are teeth in this in the hole. Hmm. Maybe teeth came out and are still there. And God, if we can find a tooth, okay. you can get DNA from a tooth. Right. Protected right. in the inside of the tooth. So we wanted to open up that hole, which we did in hard work. The hole was actually in coral, not just sand that you were digging. Oh, there's, there's no sand at the seventh yeah. side. No, yeah. hmm. it's, it's coral rubble. Hmm. And we took it down carefully layer by layer. Mm-hmm. And what we discovered is that everything looks pretty much the same until you get it cleared down a little bit and you find that there's one small section that looks different from the rest of it. Hmm. And it gives the impression that this is actually two holes. There's an initial hole that was dug and filled in and then somebody came back and dug a bigger hole around it and, and then ultimately focused in on the little hole. Ah. Okay, that makes sense. If mm. we're going back, we're going to dig up the skull. Where was it? Oh, it's around here someplace. So they have to dig it, and they find this. That seemed to fit the hypothesis. That, yeah, this is the skull hole. Yeah, interesting. And we're, we're quite sure that's what it was. Now, another thing. Over near that tank, we found the remains of <clears throat> what's called a Sasha light. It was a, a 19th. 30s vintage British flashbulb. Somebody's taken pictures with a flash. Now, on Nicomororo, if you're going to take pictures, even during the day, you're going to use a flash because the sun is so intense. The shadows are so Uh. intense. You need fill flash Hmm. if you're going to get a good picture. Gallagher had a camera. We know that, again, Hmm. from the inventory. Didn't say anything about a flash attachment. Yeah, but maybe you wouldn't. Maybe you wouldn't. I don't know. Now, did Gallagher take pictures of the that skull? Would be interesting to know. I can't tell you how hard we've tried to find any photos that Gallagher may have taken on Nicomarara, and they don't seem to exist. Wow. There's no reference to them in any of the archival stuff. Mm-hmm. We know he had a camera, and he, and he had um, developing materials. So uh. we know he could develop pictures. It's inconceivable that he didn't take pictures, and... And yet, they don't seem to still exist. Hmm. Now, one thing we did notice about the seven site is that the strawberry hermit crabs, these little guys um, that swarm over any kind of car- carcass. So, are they're like the hermit crabs that people keep as pets? No, no, no. these are bigger. The By, strawberry, like strawberry hermit... Lives in a borrowed shell about the size of a baseball. So, got it. And up at the end of the island where the village was and where we come ashore because of the blasted landing channel, they always come ashore. Right. The strawberry hermits there are very shy. 
as soon as people show up, they go skittering back into the underbrush and they climb into the trees and they, oh. they're they very shy. Down at the seventh site, they're aggressive. That's odd. How far the apart tw- are they? Well, it's a couple miles, huh. two and a half miles maybe. Other end of the island. Now, of course, the population of strawberry hermits up by the village are the descendants of strawberry hermits sure. that were there when there were people around. And they probably learned, it's part of their culture, right. <laughs> if, if crabs can have a culture, to be careful about humans. Not so, down at the other end. And these guys, I mean, we'd take our lunch break, and as soon as you open the cooler that has your sandwiches and stuff in it, they're coming out of the bushes. <laughs> oh, it's lunchtime. And they'll climb up your leg. Really? And we'd feed them pieces of uh, a sandwich, piece of bread, or a oh, piece of fruit. And, so they've learned. <laughs> oh, yeah. And they were all over it. Of course, the little Polynesian rats also come out, and they mug the crabs for the pieces of bread. Oh, so you get lunchtime entertainment. It's really quite a show. <laughs> And a rat that'll come up and sit on the log beside you and take a, a piece of bread from your hand. Really? Yeah. I mean, it's Nicomararo is a strange place. So were there seagulls or were they just No, no. The, 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 the birds don't mess with you. Yeah. Except, <laughs> except the juvenile frigate birds. These big guys that can have a six-foot wing, right. wing spread. If you're walking along the beach... The juvenile frigates have been known, I've had it happen to me, uh, will kind of hover in behind you and bop you on the back of the head with their beak. Why? I don't know. <laughs> just fun. maybe to see well, they, how you react. They're teenagers. Just, <laughs> God. Uh, of course, on Nicku, you kind of take it and try. Yeah, yeah, well, this is Nicku Marara. You know, the rules are different here. <laughs> Well, okay, so strawberry hermits are aggressive at the seventh site. What is that? <laughs> of course, uh, one of our team members, a <clears throat> fellow named Bill Carter, had a theory about that. He oh. says, well, you know, it was, they remember the castaway. <laughs> and uh, they look at us and they say, oh, people, the other, other white meat. They say, oh, my God, Bill. So, on September 10th, we did the dedication of our plaque to go on Gallagher's the Gallagher's, tomb. yes. And uh, at the ceremony we had, we tried as best we could to duplicate the one that was described in the files as that was done in 1941. Uh, we draped uh, the tomb with a Union Jack flag. British flag. We also had other flags hung in the on like clothesline on the trees: an American flag and a Caribous flag and a Tiger flag. We were dressed in our um, Tiger uniforms. They're our khaki Tiger shirts. With our, well, no, they weren't khaki Tiger shirts at that time. We had uh, the the blue expedition shirts, but we all we were all in uniform, Aww. and we. Sang nearer, my God, to Thee, and really? yeah, it was. Had uh, they sung that? Had when they had the original um, service? Did they give any details like that? Uh, it would have been typical. 
I'm I'm not sure whether we made that up or whether we were... But here, I have to tell the story of the mystery of Gallagher's grave. The colony was abandoned in 1963, and Gallagher's mother, back in England, was unhappy that the island was going to be abandoned, and her son was buried there with no one to tend his grave. And of course, uh, Gallagher was Catholic, and there was not sanctified ground. Right. And so she petitioned the government, who's still a British colony, she petitioned the government to move his remains to Tarawa, where there was a Catholic cemetery uh-huh. on, on Tarawa. And in 1968, as it turns out, we, we later learned this. We had no idea this at, at the time in 2001. We later learned that in 1968, an expedition went to Gardner Island, Nicomororo. And I don't know, they were maybe doing something else too. I don't know if it was just dedicated to just recovering Kelleher's remains. Yeah. But they did send a couple of guys with shovels and uh, a coffin and their job was to go and exhume Gallagher's remains, put them in the coffin and bring them back. And they retrieved the plaque at the same time uh, they did that. That's why the uh, plaque was missing. Okay, Somebody well, didn't too- steal it. It that's was retrieved along with Gallagher's remains. Supposedly. Now here's the catch. There was a woman on that trip whose job it was to take photographs of all this. Ah. And she was following these guys with the shovels up through to where the tomb was. Now, it's easy to get lost in the coconut jungle mm-hmm. on, on Niku. And she was following these guys along, but she needed to change the film on her camera and she needed some shade. And she found a still standing abandoned building. I think she probably used the old cistern building. I'm not sure. But anyway, she went aside where it was dark and she changed the film in her camera. And when she finished, they hadn't waited for her. And she lost them. Wow. And she couldn't find them. So she just made her way back out to the beach. And eventually, these guys come back with their shovels and the coffin on their shoulder, obviously heavy. And they put it aboard ship, and off they go. Well, we learned about this later from a book the woman wrote about her adventures in the South Seas and so forth. The photographer. And the photographer, yes. Yeah. And and there was a photograph of Gallagher's new grave in Tarawa. Hmm. And you could see that there's the plaque oh, as a headstone. Okay, so it's 2011 now, and Bill Carter, same guy as the other other white meat, Bill and I are in Tarawa doing archival research. And we say, well, as long as we're here, let's go visit Gallagher's grave. And we go and uh, we can't find it. We look up and down in the cemetery, and there's the plaque's not here. Huh. And we go back and we look at the photograph, and they say, yeah, but these other headstones that appear in the photograph are here. The grave had to be this one right here that doesn't have a headstone. Huh. 
Oh, weird. So we went and talked to the bishop of the diocese so that was there. Yeah. And he said, yeah, um, there was a big scrap drive here a couple of years ago, and that plaque just disappeared. Some, so this time it really was stolen. Oh, jeez. But we said, well, uh, did anybody ever like confirm, or ever open that coffin to make sure the, the bones? Are... No, nobody ever opened that coffin. I said, well, we're curious about something because we've been to that tomb on Nicomororo and it's never been disturbed. The, to, hmm. to get the bones out of that thing, you would have to dig in under the side of it. And if you dig in under the side of it, the whole thing is going to tip over. Oh. And that, that never happened. Interesting. And we're wondering if the guys, because the photographer wasn't there, and these are just a couple of guys with a job, and they look at this, boy, this is going to be a real bummer of a job. <laughs> Tell you what, let's just take the plaque and we'll, we'll put some coral blocks in the, in the coffin, make it heavy. Mm-hmm. And we'll just say we've got the body and nobody's going to open the coffin. And they didn't. <laughs> hmm. So there might not be any human remains in that coffin. I said, we don't know. But we can't see how there could be based on the appearance of the grave that supposedly right. was exhumed. And he said, well, I want to know because this there's there's a real shortage of land on uh, Tarawa. Oh, my. And that <laughs> is going to use it. If it's... That is prime real estate, right out there by the ocean. And we have nuns and priests that we want to bury, and that's occupying priceless real estate. Oh my! And I don't want that real estate <laughs> occupied with a box full of bo- a box full of stones. You know, <laughs> you guys need to go and dig that up. I said, no, 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 no. <laughs> we did not come here to dig up graves. That is not our job. And we're not qualified to do it. And if, if you want to um, check that out, that's, that's diocese business. That's, that's up to you guys. But we're just, we're just saying that it doesn't make sense. For so uh, I don't know if they ever did check it or not. That's it. Very but to this day, <laughs> nobody knows <laughs> where Gallagher's oh, remains remain. Darn. Well, I, I think the fact that they said he was buried where he most liked to be, it seemed kind of a shame to pick him up and move him. But Well, yeah. Anyway, uh, I get the religious piece. And uh, if he really was there when we sang to him and yeah. dedicated <laughs> rededicated his plaque i mean maybe we just set things right yeah <laughs> i i hope so <laughs> i hope so too okay so that was september 10th uh, 2001 and think oh, about that gosh. date for a second yeah really next morning i get up 5 30 in the morning and I've got my sat phone. Your time, right, our yeah, time. It's, it's it's noon time back yeah. in Delaware. Oh God! And I call Pat, <clears throat> and she answers the phone. Now we've been married a long time, and uh, like most married couples, I know her mood instantly as soon as she opens her mouth, says something, and though just the way she answered the phone, I said, "Oh my God! I wonder what has happened. Mm. Something terrible has happened." And then she started to describe what had happened. And at that point, we still didn't 
know all of what was happening. No, no, it was Not kind of an you. ongoing thing. Yes. And I remember standing there on that deck in the dark. What do you mean the towers have fallen? The towers can't fall. This is crazy. And she said, well, yeah, I, I saw it. It, it yeah. has happened. And, in real time. Oh, so, and I'm standing there thinking, oh, God. Now, I've, I've got to go down into the salon where the team is up and assembling for breakfast. And I know I've got team members who uh, live in and near New York, have relatives that... Probably no people in New who York. There. No people. I'd say, and I've got to break this news to them. And and at I that lo- point, you're not even sure what it is, like what the news they, is. And tell you something else interesting. I, I, I walked into that room, and I, this is just a, a week or two ago. I was talking to uh, Captain Gifford, our uh, uh, airline, airline yeah. and aviation expert. And we were reminiscing about September 11th and, oh, and where we were and what we were doing. Yeah. He says, you walked into that room and I took one look at you and I said to myself, oh, my God, one of his horses has died. Oh. Which was the first thought I had when I heard <laughs> Pat answer the phone. You know? uh, <laughs> so, um, yeah, I mean, that, that kind of stuff really, mm-hmm. really shows up in people. Yeah. And... So we were getting what information we could by sat phone. We could get an Australian news station on the shortwave and a little handheld radio that Jim Morrissey had. And we rigged up an antenna that that seemed to work pretty well. And we would just huddle around that and and get as much information as we could. But we, we of course, saw none of the visual stuff mm. and and didn't until we got home wow. and and didn't appreciate the um, the impact that Literally. this had on the country really and, and until, it was so uncertain yeah and for we, days so we're out there and all we can do is get what information we can and keep going with our work yeah. and so we just we just kept on with the work and and did what we could you wouldn't even notice the lack of Airlines. <laughs> well, there's another thing where the yeah, we, we, we we knew that all airline services shut down, right? And we're thinking, okay, so how are we getting home? <laughs> how long is this going to be shut down? Hmm. Here we are out in the middle of I know. nowhere. I mean, there was so much uncertainty. Jeez, every front. Everybody's got a 9/11 story, I and know. ours is a little different than many. Another interesting aspect of that whole thing was that recall that we also had a plaque to the Norwich City survivors. And we got that installed on the engine. And later that week, we dedicated that plaque. Now, the wreck of the Norwich City cost the lives of five British sailors, but also six Arab firemen. These are guys, oilmen, that worked in the hold. And they, of course, were Muslim. Right. Well, if we're going to dedicate a plaque to the crew that was lost, we have to uh, do something appropriate for the British sailors. But what can we do for the Arab firemen? And before we left, I had gone to the mosque in Wilmington 
Delaware and explain to the imam what we were going to do and what we wanted to do when we were having this plaque made. And I said, what, what can we do that's appropriate uh, to uh, pay our respects to those six Arabs that, that died? He said, nothing, because you're an infidel. There's, uh, there's nothing you can do. Wow. I said, well, if you were there, what would you do? He said, well, there are, are, are things that, that can be said that, that should be said. Could I make a recording of you saying those things and simply play that recording? He said, I guess so. So that's what I did. Um, I made a recording of the imam saying what, and it was all in Arabic. I have no idea. Or what? Okay, so here I am on Niku, a few days after 9-11, wow. and we're going to hold a, a ceremony, and it's easy to uh, commemorate the, the loss of the, the five British seamen and sing the Navy hymn, Those in Peril on the Sea, and, you know. Mm. But I'm going to uh, commemorate six Muslims? And everybody was cool with that. Everybody well, says, okay, yes. yeah, the, 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 these guys didn't have anything to exactly. do with 9-11. Exactly. I think we had one person who said he wouldn't be comfortable doing that, and he, mm-hmm. he skipped the, the ceremony. Everybody else was, okay, good. And that's what we did. Mm-hmm. So in the end, we collected 47 artifacts on that expedition. Wow. And... Most of them we knew were not associated with the castaway. This was a typical archaeological site. There had been a number of different activities on that site over the years. We knew the artifacts we had, some of them appeared to be evidence of a castaway camp. Mm -hmm. But we also knew uh, there had been a failed coconut planting there and work associated with that. It's very possible that some of the artifacts we had found and seen on the site, like this tank, were associated with the coconut planting. And we know that during World War II, the Coasties came there and did target practice. Yes. Okay, so we've got the ruins of that. Coast Guard China. (laughs) Yeah. So you've got this collection of stuff, and it all needs to be sorted out and investigated and identified to the extent we can. Looking back on it, in retrospect, 2001 was the first expedition of all the ones we'd done up to that time in which we made real progress. Prior to that, we had information that indicated this is probably where our heart died. And we had these rumors to check out. And we had done research and gotten publicity that brought forth information that enabled us to get a new information. So it was was all coming together, but we still didn't know uh, for sure where the airplane landed and where the bones were found. We knew knew the bones had been found. We still didn't know where that happened. So the results of the 2001 expedition had, as there often is, negative results. We knew that uh, the plane was not right off the edge of the reef where those funny colored pixels were negative. Right. 
we had done the lagoon delta and uh, near the lagoon passage delta with metal detectors found nothing there was nothing there we had looked along the shore of the little peninsula out in the lagoon where old Pulakai Songovalo in Funafuti had told us he'd seen airplane wreckage. Uh. But there was nothing there anymore. So that was all negative. But we had positive results. We had looked at the reef north of the Norwich City Wreck as a possible place to land an airplane mm-hmm. at low tide. And you could ride a bicycle out there. Okay. I mean, it was plenty long enough, plenty wide enough. No, you can't land and then taxi up to shore where it's safer because as soon as you get away from the outer edges near where the waves break it gets really jagged and rough and pitted you you couldn't do that but that so that all made sense you know they land out there they send their radio distress calls but they they can't get the airplane someplace safe and they ultimately lose it to rising tides and surf so that was a real positive result i mean that that part of the hypothesis checked out and of course, the seventh site, bingo, yes, mm-hmm. this is this is looking really good. Now, there's no smoking gun discovery, okay? Yes. No. <laughs> no whiff of. No whiff of gun smoke, okay? <laughs> and because of that, our sort of sponsor, Mike Gammerer, didn't end up doing anything. I mean, he had all this videotape shot, Mark Smith and the sound man, they got all this videotape, and they never did anything with it. Uh. But he ultimately just said, ah, oh, you can have it. So, oh, so we can, we have all yeah. that video, and it's a great video. Yes. And now we have, uh, we can use it, and we have used it in television documentaries. So mm. it all worked good. Mike went off and decided our whole hypothesis was wrong. And the airplane was uh, undoubtedly on the bottom of the ocean up oh. by Holland Island. And he was going to develop underwater search technology that was going to find it. And he went out and spent a whole lot of money trying to develop something that never turned out to wow. do anything. So that all piddled out, and he eventually died. And so, But we had our expedition, and we had our, our results. Mm. Uh, we knew that we needed to survey that reef because the credible post-loss radio calls should match times when the water on the reef is low enough for Earhart to be able to run an engine to recharge the battery upon which the radio depends. Right. The airplane's got to be on its wheels, and they've got to be able to run an engine to recharge the battery. Oh. And you're not going to send calls on the transmitter if the engine's not running because you use the same battery to start the engine that you use to send radio calls. And if you run the battery down sending radio calls, you can't get the engine restarted, and now you really are up a creek. So it only makes sense for her to get the engine started and then make calls. Well, do the credible calls match the times when the water's low enough on, now we know the section of the reef. Right. We, We can test that hypothesis. But to do it, we have to survey the reef surface. We've got to know how high that reef is off sea level. Right. And then hindcast the tides. We've got to measure this thing down to a few inches. Sure. And how high the radio is in the plane. Yeah. That's going to take some work. we got to come back and survey that reef. we got to figure out how we're going to do it. And uh, 
there's a lot involved in that. Yes, so there would be. We we need to do that. And of course, we need to go back to that seven site. Enlarge the excavation. There's more stuff there. Uh, yes. We've found enough to indicate that, yeah, we do seem to have the right spot. So we do need to in, in, enlarge that excavation and see what else we can find. So that's that's pretty good. You know, you end an expedition. Knowing have, what you're going to do the next. Knowing what you're going to do next yeah. time, but have having answered some important questions. The first time we'd ever been able to do it. We've been working <laughs> on this thing since 1988, and now... We've got some answers yes, and a promise of more answers if we can get back out there. Mm. So we were pumped. Yes, we I were, bet. We were ready to keep going. And it'll be interesting to hear how, what, you, what you did with the artifacts, like how, what that led to. Yeah. Are there any? Yeah, there, there's, uh, there's more to the story to be told there, too. But we'll do that in the next episode. <laughs> okay, sounds good. Thank you, Rick. Thank you. Hi, Rick. Last time we were at the end of the 2001 expedition to Niku, and we talked about the artifacts that you found while you were there and how you would identify them and what their significance might be. Can well, you take it from there? Yeah, I mean, that's, that's what you do. You, know, you, you, you never know <laughs> what you've found at the time you find it. <laughs> um, people always have this impression of an Indiana Jones kind of discovery where you part the bushes and you'll see the thing you've been looking for. Yeah. And that's not how it happens. You, If you're lucky, you find something that looks interesting, but you don't know whether it's really interesting or not until you get home and you do the research. And so the great moments of discovery don't happen in the field. They happen sitting in front of your computer or getting the results of a lab report or something. its That's the way science really happens. <laughs> Not quite as glamorous. So we get back and we've got these things that we found in the ground at the seven site. And some of them were very puzzling. There were a couple of little objects we called the Gigi's, for <laughs> want of a better name to call them. They were very small, less than an inch, aluminum pieces that had one end filed into like teeth as if to grip something. And then a couple of holes, one hole, through one of the holes was a screw, obviously a a wood screw. And, And these things looked homemade the aluminum bits weren't manufactured they were clearly fashioned by somebody so these were things that somebody had made for some purpose so it's like they would mount onto the end of a of a stick or something for a tool well we had no idea how many did you find like two one one was kind of round kind of round it wasn't perfectly round but it was kind of round and the other one was more rectangular and that one had been bent well when we got home we were able to confirm yes this is aluminum yes they were not manufactured and these wood screws are american wood screws hmm. you can tell because of the way the, the threads go right right and, and they're brass okay so there were american uh, coast guardsmen there on the island and they would have American wood screws, but why would they fashion something like this? We did, but of course, Earhart was American, and 
one of the things that had been found at the same time the bones were found was a sextant box, which is wooden. Yeah. And there are fixtures in sextant boxes to secure pieces, spare parts right? and, and uh, attachments to the, to the sextant. And maybe this is a specialized homemade way of affixing something. We didn't know. But very odd little objects. We still don't know what they're for. <laughs> we, they're, they're, they're still just the Gidgees. We have no idea. Oh, interesting. Uh, we recovered the food can that we had first found in 1996. And as I think we talked about in an earlier episode, turned out to be a can for Australian canned mutton. Bone in for flavor. It's, oh. uh, we, we matched it up. The, the dimensions of the can. Are, it's kind of like a, uh, a, a tuna fish can, but, but quite a bit bigger. Uh, and we matched it up with an existing antique label for canned mutton. And then on, I, God, I think it was the 2010 expedition, we actually found the little pieces of, of uh, sheep bone that had been in the... <laughs> <laughs> that had us going for a while. Really? So we're finding little pieces of bone at the seven site, and we get them back and have them analyzed, and they turn out to be sheep bones. So wait a minute. There are no sheep at the seven site. And then, wait a minute, the food can, the can mutton, of course. Uh, and so mystery solved. Now, whose who's can of canned mutton was <laughs> could you um, Could you date it? No. And it, it, they were popular in the 1930s. Yeah. But a lot of the the uh, food supplied to the settlers came from Australia. Oh, huh. But of course, Earhart came through Australia, Australia through Darwin, Australia, and there could have just as easily have been a can of can mutton aboard the electric. Right. It wouldn't have been in their inventory because so, no, that, that no, we have... don't have an inventory for what they had with them for that flight. So, geez, okay. <laughs> we found several more. Pieces of crockery, you know, uh, ceramic plate shards. Uh, more target practice? More target practice because <laughs> one of them had a Coast Guard logo on it. So, okay, um, mystery solved. 30 caliber shells, M1 carbines, broken mess hall crockery, <laughs> and radio tubes. Big radio tubes from the Loran station. Oh. So they're up there blowing old stuff apart. <laughs> okay. But we also found uh, some amber-colored, brown-colored glass hmm. that was kind of odd. Um, couldn't explain it. Maybe Coast Guard-related, maybe not. So we just noted where it was, and it was an area that needed more attention. So we were going to go back and, and do that on the next trip. Huh. And then we, we had a piece that really puzzled us. It was a little maybe only uh, one inch by two inch triangular piece of plate glass, very, very thin plate glass. One edge was finished and the other two edges were broken. Huh. It's almost like window glass, but even thin for window glass. Wow. What the heck could this thing be? Now we, we later found out what it was, what? but we'll save that for a later expedition. Oh. <laughs> that, that mystery was solved uh, on a later expedition. Uh. So we were generally thinking that, okay, we need to come back here. We need to do an even bigger excavation of the seventh site because what we found on this trip, make it clear that, yeah, 
we've, we've got the right site here right. and there's more stuff here. Hmm. We just need to come back and, and do a bigger excavation of it. So we set out um, the plan for NICU 5 for the summer of 2004. Something we had done earlier in 2001, before the expedition, was to make a trip to Tarawa, the capital of, of Kiribati. Mm-hmm. And that was prompted by a report we had from the government in Kiribati that they had recently returned from an expedition to Sydney Island, now called Manra, where there had been a settlement, mm-hmm. just like there had been a Nicomararo. Right. But they said there were there was airplane debris there. There, oh. was, there was a crashed airplane there. How far was that from Nicomararo? A couple hundred miles, oh, okay. like 214 miles, something like that, from huh. Nicomararo. But there was an airplane wreck on Sydney Island. Hmm. Now, we knew that there were reports of a wartime crash on Sydney Island. And we knew what that crash was. It was a C-47 that had Hmm. um, hit a palm tree and and crashed there. But they had actually recovered a propeller from Sydney Island, and they had it in Tarawa. Hmm. And they thought it might be a propeller from Emily Earhart's airplane. So... That might well, have washed there or well, been carried or, there. Or maybe Earhart's plane also crashed on Sydney oh, Island. Huh. Maybe there was more than one crash. Yeah. We didn't know. Interesting. We didn't think that was likely, but God, we've got a, a propeller we could look at. All we have sure. to do is go to Tarawa, which is not the easiest thing in the world. But yeah, <laughs> uh, two of us decided to go, me and uh, a fellow named Van Hun, great mm-hmm. guy. And we also wanted to go to the archives in Tarawa and get better photocopies of the telegrams that we knew were there from uh, Gallagher's time. And we wondered what other records of the settlement might be available there in Tarawa to copy. Sure. So uh, we And your had, original things that you had from there, I, I forget, how did you get them? Were they faxed? They were faxed. Okay, so they they were found sort of by accident by a Tiger member who was doing research on a book, and he came across the files, told me about them. We got somebody to fax us copies uh, from, but they were just faxes, right? And they t- they were faxes, and we we also wondered what else might be there. Sure, uh, we really wanted to dig into the the archives, so we had good reason to go to Tarawa, and we did find more information there about the settlement including hand-drawn maps of the island, dividing the island into districts, oh. assigning, assigning. And, and there were several of them over time because land was allocated to the settlers. Hmm. And you'd, you'd find these maps with lines drawn. This piece of land is piece 21, and this one is piece 22. And then there'd be a, a key to the map and said, well... Uh, land parcel 21 is allocated to family so-and-so, uh. family names. And we we had that. Well, what was interesting about that is there was a place down uh, at where we knew as a seven site, that uh. part of the island. None of that land had been allocated to, to families at all. But there was a piece designated there that on the earlier maps, and these date from... A, couple years after Gallagher died in 1941. One of the, the earliest map had that piece of land assigned to what looked like Comatina, 
K-O-M-I-T. But that's, remember, in Gilbertese, T-I is pronounced S. Ah. It's Komisna, commissioner. <laughs> it's government land. Yes. And then in the last map, which was drawn by a district officer by the name of Paul Laxton, that piece of land is designated Karaka, K-A-R-A-K-A, hmm. which is what Laxton said the settlers called Gallagher. Oh. Okay, well, that's really interesting. That directly links that piece of land to Gallagher. But it also <laughs> pointed up a myth that grew up about Gallagher and what the locals called him. We look at the name and normally would pronounce it Gallagher. Right. And so did Laxton, because Laxton never knew Gerald. Mm. He, he came along later. Right. So he looked at the name, pronounced it Gallagher, just like you and I would do. But that's not how Gerald Gallagher pronounced his name. I pronounced it Gallagher when I was speaking with Eric Bevington, the colonial service officer who really didn't know him. And he corrected me instantly. He said, no, 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 it, Gallagher. That's oh, how he pronounced huh. the name. The people who were present on the island when Gallagher was there, the settlers yes, were there, the like Emily Sakuli, mm -hmm. asked her how he was referred to. She said, Kella, ah. K-E-L-A, Kella. Well, Gallagher, Gala. People that speak those languages have a really hard time with English pronunciation. Hmm. Gilbert's comes out Kiribati. Okay. So Gallagher came out Kella. Laxton looked at Gallagher and came up with Karaka. But that that was Laxton. That oh, wasn't the Severs. So that was on the map, but incorrect. And that was on the map, but it was Laxton's map. Right. Right. So, uh, not that it matters a whole lot, but it's a really an piece. interesting piece yeah. of, of how things evolve. Hmm. Okay, so we get this information about Nicomororo and its history, and now we, we know that the Seven Site really was the place that Gallagher set aside. We didn't know what else had happened there after the bones were found. The place obviously had a history because we had found things there that we knew were not associated with a castaway. The Coast Guard stuff. And, right, sure. But the picture's starting to emerge of, hmm. of what the history of the site was like. Meanwhile, recall that the ship that we had started using, that we used on the 1997 trip and the 1999 trip and the 2001 trip, Naya, yeah. the motor sailor out of Fiji, made its living usually taking scuba divers around the Fiji Islands. Ah. And one of their customers was the New England Aquarium that did coral research. Oh. Huh. And, of course, the owners of Naya, uh, including Rob Barrell, who had been with us out there in 97, were just blown away by the pristine nature of the reef at hmm. Nicomororo. It was just this is so much better than any place in Fiji. I mean, this is so uh, beautiful well, untouched, and untouched. Really? Yeah. And this is a great place to bring tourists. Hmm. 
slowly, naturally, we're talking up Nicomororo. And when the people at the New England Aquarium heard about it and said, oh, we need to go there and study this place. Huh. Th- this is a place that really needs attention. So the New England Aquarium in 2002 chartered Naya for an expedition to Nicomororo to investigate the reef. Hmm. And that expedition was led by a marine biologist by the name of Greg Stone, Dr. Greg Stone. They get out there and they look at the reef and they're collecting all their data. And very successful trip. And they're on their way home. They're, they're sailing back to Fiji aboard Naya. And they're sitting around the, the dining table aboard Naya. And Greg says casually to Rob, he says, boy, I'll bet that that wheel uh, there at the, in the uh, in the main passage really gave Rick's people a tiger. The uh, wheel, really, an exciting time. <laughs> hmm. Rob says, "What are you talking about? What wheel? Oh yeah, you know, you know, it's it's right there. It's maybe ten feet off the shoreline in the main oh, passage." Geez. He says, "What wheel? What are you talking about? Yeah, there's a wheel out there, and and it's it's obviously not a a, a car or a truck." wheel there's no tire it's the center part of the wheel and it's just kind of standing there and it was cemented to the coral it's about the size of an airplane wheel and i figured the tiger people would really be interested in it but obviously it doesn't mean anything because it's still there rob says they never said anything about seeing a wheel what are you talking about (laughs) no no i went out and i looked at it and i tugged at it but it was kind of cemented to the reef must have been there for a while and uh, I just figured, you need to call Rick when you get home. <laughs> so Greg did. I get this phone call from Greg Stone. He tells me this. I said, Greg, you need to meet me in uh, Windsor Locks, Connecticut at the New England Air Museum. And we're going to look at airplane wheels. Hmm. Okay. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> so Greg met me at the New England Air Museum. And we walked around the museum looking at different airplane wheels. And he says, yeah, it was kind of like this, but no, it was bigger than that one. No, it wasn't like that one. It's just, yeah, it, it, it was a pretty much like that one right there. <laughs> On Lockheed Electra. Jeez. I said, oh, my God. I don't and know nobody how. nobody photographed it or he, anything? He, no, he didn't have a camera with him. Uh-huh. He, he just assumed that we had seen it and uh-huh. dismissed it. <laughs> And I don't know if it was there when we were there and we just missed it or whether it arrived later. Well, what did, had they had good visibility when they were there diving? Yeah. yeah. And you you wouldn't need to dive to see this. This is... 10 feet down in clear water. No, it's not 10 feet. It's 10 feet out from the shoreline. Oh, geez. It's like like a foot of water. Oh, you're kidding. I mean, it's right friggin' there. (laughs) And... Uh, that's why he couldn't believe we, we hadn't seen it. And I couldn't either because... How long would it take to be cemented in the coral reef? Good question. Yeah. And we don't know for sure. Hmm. But, jeez. You know, well, we, did you go... What happened? What about that? Well, our, our thinking... Did you schedule up? <laughs> we, we need to get back there and, you know, like ASAP. Really? We, <laughs> yeah, it, it, it's one thing to have somebody who was there as a teenage girl and saw wreckage out on a reef and right. remi- and says, yeah, I saw that. It's another thing to have... Somebody this week who saw... A PhD <laughs> marine biologist who a few months ago saw... Wow. Okay, so we got to get back out there. 
Um, and so this is after you're back from we're, 2001. We're, well, what and, you're planning? It's it's uh, yeah, it's early 2003. Oh, okay. Because New England Aquarium's out there in 2002. Oh, okay. They get back. And we do the research about what wheel might have been. Yeah. We got okay. So it's early two thousand three. What's Naya doing? Well, Naya is thinking, yeah. Well, we don't want to. We want to go back out to Nicomarara with with tourists because it's such a great place. And we've got a trip scheduled for like March of this year. Oh, March of two thousand three. Candy, yeah. We're going to go back out there, except we don't have enough passengers yet to justify the trip. we got to have a minimum number of passengers to make sure. it worthwhile. Yeah. And I said, well, how about we piggyback on your tourist trip? We'll fill in the missing passengers you need to make the trip, because we don't need a huge team sure. to go out there to check this out, and we'll go along with you. And yeah, that'll work. Okay, <laughs> so we're good. This is going to be Niku 5. So it's another preliminary expedition. This is yes. going to be Niku 5P. Okay, whatever. Well, <clears throat> that was a good plan. I know. But if you think back to what happened in March of 2003 mm. uh, on the world stage, it became obvious to everyone that the United States was about to start a war. Mm. And those non-Tiger participants in the Naya trip suddenly discovered conflicts in their schedules and regions. They didn't want to be out of the country oh. when God knows what's going to happen when we roll into Iraq. Right. So Naya had to cancel the trip. Oh, jeez. Boom. Shoot. Now what? Okay, plan B. <laughs> we just need a small team out there. And there's a sailboat. For a charter, a uh, fella out of New Zealand. It's a nice, nice sailboat. Here, handle a, a small team. It's not powered. You're, it's a pure sailboat. Oh, but that's not, that's okay. You know. How did you uh, discover that? Take take a little longer. What was your question? How did you discover that? How did we? Well, okay. Or did he keep it? Yeah, we we discovered that through a Tiger member in New Zealand. Mm-hmm. Gentleman named Howard Aldred, who was a coral reef geologist, oh. who had joined Tiger, and was really dedicated to the project. He would, he would fly from New Zealand to Delaware to participate in our uh, research meetings. Oh, that wow. Howard was was a hoot. I mean, he's a great guy, very knowledgeable, and what a resource. And he, he would have been. really knew. He, he's the guy that looked at our piece of aluminum, 22V1, the, the panel of aluminum, yeah. and said, these are coral accretions on this thing, and we can test that. And he tested it with uh, acid and said, yeah, uh, this, is, this, is, this is coral. And for this to be here, it means this thing was submerged in shallow water where coral could grow for a considerable period of time. Oh, interesting. Uh, so whatever this thing is and wherever it came from, it was in shallow water and, and with coral growing on it. Hmm. Um, Howard, Howard's trademark was um, extremely loud ties, neckties. Uh, 
He'd always wear a necktie. None of the rest of us wore neckties. Howard always wore a necktie. Out on Niku and no, no, the, not not on Niku. Oh, no, see. but it, it like at, on the air at the airport. It, and the, yeah, it, at the research meetings, you sit around, and it was a standing joke. Well, okay, what kind of tie is Howard going to show up in <laughs> next? But Howard was from New Zealand, and when this crisis arose with oh, Naya is not going to be available, he had this connection in New Zealand with this sailboat, ah. and made arrangements. Was he planning on going? Well, we wanted him to. Yeah. We said, okay, we, Howard, we need you, and we'll uh, have three other Tiger members. We'll have John Klaus and Van Hun and Walt Holm, and you guys will go aboard this boat. It's called Molly. Huh. It was owned by a guy and his wife who had a seven-year-old daughter, Molly, oh. <laughs> who also sailed with him. She went on the trip. Oh, she was apparently fun. a wonderful kid. Uh, and you didn't go Oh, I, 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 this is the only tiger trip to Niku that I didn't go on. <laughs> hmm. So the plan was for Molly, the sailboat, to meet the team in Apia, Samoa. Huh. Our team was going to fly through Hawaii on Hawaiian Air, down to Pongo Pongo, American Samoa, as we had done right. in the past. Right. And then they'd just catch a little commuter flight over to Apia, board Molly, and go on up to Niku. Great plan. Except oh. Hawaiian Air upgraded their fleet. They had been using DC-10s, big, wide-body airplane, three-engined, sits up high off the ground. Yep. They upgraded to the Boeing 767 hmm. twin engine, but the engines are down close to the runway. Uh, and the runway at Pongo was old and in need of refurbishment. And there were a lot of pieces of pavement and stuff being thrown up by aircraft. And the FAA had a concern about foreign object damage. They decertified the runway. Oh, gosh. So now there's no air service into Pongo. Shoot. Now what? Okay. So we had to delay the expedition for several months until the runway was refurbished. They were, they were quick about it, faster than we thought they would. And as soon as the runway was ready, we could move forward. Well, we have to have a Caribus representative, like we always like always, do. Yeah. Always. And the plan was for the Caribus representative to fly from Tarawa to Christmas Island. Hmm which is on the other side of Kiribati, so several thousand miles. But there was airline service from Christmas to Hawaii. Now, there's no, there was no and is no airline service from Tarawa to Hawaii. You have to go through Christmas or through Fiji. So the plan was for him to go through Christmas. Hmm. He gets to Christmas, and then there's some huge follow-up with the airlines at Christmas, and now there's no service from Christmas to Hawaii. Oh, and we're down to the last week. Oh. And we can't get our Caribous rep out uh, there. And oh. he had already arrived? Oh, and... he had already arrived in oh, Christmas. Geez. And we're back and forth trying to communicate with him by phone and fax and with the airlines. And there's, it's just not going to happen. He's not going to be there in wow. time for us to make all these connections. So in desperation, I got on the phone to the government in Caribous at mm. very high levels. And I said, look, guys, 
you know, as you know, we have been entirely cooperative with you and had Caribus reps on every one of our trips and paid their way and so forth. And we're happy to do it this time, but it's just not working. It, it's, we, we need a waiver. We, we need you to let us go without a Caribus rep. It's a small expedition. They'll only be there for a few days, but we've got to do this. <laughs> and bless their hearts, they said, They okay. agreed, really? They, they agreed. Wow. Waive all the rules. Yeah, go ahead. Do your trip. Wow. Just be careful. Well, you've had a history. Yeah, well, of course we'll be careful. <laughs> Jeez. So we, we did that, and they went. And, so what happened? Well, they couldn't find a wheel. Gone? It was gone. Of course, all we had was a description of where Greg had seen it. Yeah. And the landmarks involved uh, a palm tree that grew in a kind of a strange way, came up and then took a right angle turn and went out over the main passage and then went up like a... A dog uh, leg. A, yeah, like a palm tree with a dog leg in it. <laughs> and we, we called it shark tree because sharks used to like to hang out in the shade under oh. that tree so that that was shark tree and greg knew the tree we were talking about and he says well it's so many meters to the west of that tree uh, and it's about 10 feet out and they searched oh. and searched and there's nothing there but they also noted all along that shoreline that in that interim just that one year interim between 2002 and 2003 there had been another big storm come through and just cleaned out uh, that whole end. All the beachfront vegetation, a lot of the palm trees along that area, including the shark tree, oh, had had the roots exposed. Uh -huh. It's uh, really a lot of damage. And they just, all they could figure was that that tremendous surge through the passage had dislodged that wheel and carried it probably somewhere out into that lagoon. Uh -huh. Or maybe it washed up on the shoreline. Maybe it's there back in the the, hmm. the bush. So they well, had to search it back. Back in the well, they had metal detectors with them, so they went back in the 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 washed over area and sure and did a really intense search. Didn't find the wheel, but they found something else. Hmm. They found three pieces that were quite clearly aircraft structures similar to the thing we had found in 1989 that we called a dado. Uh, this uh, like panel that goes along the fuse, the uh, cabin wall between the cabin wall and the floor. Mm. And that, that's what we figured it was. But here are several more of these things. Uh, not as complete as the one we found in 89, but we could still tell these things kind of hook together. So this was a whole series of structures that went along a cabin wall. We really need to know what the inside of a Lockheed Electra looked like. Uh. Were there dados in Lockheed Electras? And if there were, what did they look like? Well, that's the kind of question we'd always had trouble answering when you're you're trying to find out if an artifact is from a particular type of airplane, you have to find an original airplane that hasn't been restored and rebuilt. Right. Because if it's been restored, you have no way of knowing hmm. whether it's been altered in any way. We've got to find a Lockheed Electra that 
had, ha, hasn't been touched. And it's got to be pretty much intact. The cabin's got to be intact. Hmm. Well, that's a tall order. Really? And Howard said, well, we've got an electric crash here in New Zealand. There's an electric that ran into a mountain, Mount Richmond. And I can get up there and, and see what's left. And he did. He helicoptered oh. in up there. But that airplane impacted that uh, that mountaintop going full chat. Oh, I mean, it so was it was no intact scattered, cabin. wrinkled wreckage. He took a whole bunch of pictures and stuff. And this might have been a part of a dato. I think I don't know. It's, oh. But it really didn't help much. Where are we going? Well, there's a publication put out the Journal of the American Aviation Historical Society. Their summer of 1971 issue had a whole accounting of Lockheed Model 10 electors, all 138 of them, I think. Oh, of what happened to them? Oh, uh, yeah. When they were built, when they were delivered, who owned them and what became of them. Wow. To the extent that they knew. Yeah. Most of them are accounted for and they don't exist anymore. And the ones that do exist, we know where they are in their museums. But there was this one that was lost in 1943, mm -hmm. but it was built in 1936. Okay. So it's it's an early Electra, lost in 1943, uh, up in back of Ketchikan, Alaska, ah. in what is now the Misty Fjords Wilderness Area, mm. middle of nowhere, way in the back country, up high in the mountains. And the story is that it was a, a Lockheed Electra flown by a, a, a company to take employees back and forth between Ketchikan and their main office, which was in, I believe, either Seattle or uh, Vancouver. Oh. But, but that's a long haul. Yeah. And they had installed an extra fuel tank hmm. in the cabin. They, oh. They had a fuselage fuel tank, just one. But the only Electra other than Earhart's and the other Tenny Special is the only other Electra that had a, a, a fuselage tank. Hmm. And the story was they, they had, uh, I think, five passengers aboard and had run into a snowstorm and radio trouble, and the pilot ended up putting the airplane into the trees. Hmm. And everybody survived. Although wow. the, the, there was a woman passenger who had a severe foot injury, and she ended up bleeding to death before they could hmm. help her. The pilot of that Electra was a man named Harold Gillum, who was a famous Alaskan bush pilot. Oh. Uh, he was known as uh, Chillum Spillum, but don't kill him Gillum. <laughs> All kinds of stories about his exploits. Very, very famous pilot. Gillum, after a few days, decided to, to try to walk out and get help. Mm. And he didn't make it. They Where later... were they? Like, how far were they from... Help. Uh, a long way from uh -huh. any help. I mean, miles and miles and miles. I mean, that's mm -hmm. it's it's a really remote area. But the authorities knew that they were missing, and they were searching for them. But the weather had been bad, so they uh -huh. they couldn't. Search. the The Coast Guard was up there searching with aircraft, and they had a, a ship standing by. The Coast Guard eventually did rescue the other passengers, but Gillum was lost. Uh, okay, so there's a Lockheed Electra sitting up there, mostly intact, 
so it didn't untouched it, it, land it crash landed it crash so, landed it, he, so he kind of mushed it into the treetops yeah hmm. and it's kind of on the bank of a ravine uh, rough country but the airplane was mostly intact you could you could see it from the air ah you could see the wreck from the air but you couldn't land a helicopter up there because it's a wilderness area you couldn't go in oh. there with any kind of vehicle you couldn't land a helicopter up there and the only way in was on foot. Wow. Okay. So we need <laughs> to put a team in there on foot to see if they can get up to the wreck and, uh, and that's see if there are dados in that airplane <laughs> and see if we've got an artifact that matches something in a Lockheed Electra. Wow. And we, we put together a team. It was uh, Bill Carter. John Klaus, Walt Holm, Gary Quigg, and they had a couple of guys from Fish and Wildlife that went along, one of whom had a big rifle with them because it's bear country. <laughs> right. And they flew in in a de Havilland Beaver on floats mm -hmm. and were dropped off and started hiking up the mountains. Wow. And next time we'll talk about oh. how they made out. <laughs> oh, my. <laughs> yeah, it's quite an adventure story. Okay, God, it would have to be. Yep. Wow. Well, thank you, Rick. We'll look forward to next time. You betcha. Hi, Rick. The last time we talked, a tiger team was headed into an Alaskan wilderness area to find and inspect the wreckage of a Lockheed Electra, which had crashed in 1943. Can you remind us why they were going? Yeah. We had recovered artifacts on Nicomororo in 1989 and again in 2003 that we thought might be something called dados. This is a, a panel that's installed in the cabin of an airplane on the wall down where it joins the floor, just like in a house where you have a little panel at, at the base of the wall. And we wondered if Lockheed Electras had dados installed in them. But to know for sure, we had to find a Lockheed Electra that was still pretty much intact, but nobody had touched because you, you can't rely on restored airplanes to give you accurate information about how airplanes were originally constructed because you never know what's been changed during sure. the restora restoration. What was their function, actually? The the, the, the function of, of, a, of a data was simply to keep someone from putting their foot through the headliner that is uh, uh, the, the the cloth that goes down the wall, an aluminum panel. So like a kick panel. Oh, a kick panel yeah, is a good yeah. way to describe it. Got okay. It. Well, did electors have something like this? And if they did, did they look like what we had? Right. Well, we had to find an electra that was still intact, that nobody had messed with, that nobody had restored. And we ultimately found that there was one in the uh, Misty Fords Wilderness area, way out in back of Ketchikan, Alaska. It's in the middle of nowhere, up on a mountain, and where the airplane had crashed into the trees. Uh -huh. And it was still there. You could see it from the air. But because it was a wilderness area, by law, you couldn't go in there with vehicles of any kind, ATVs, or even land a helicopter anywhere close right. by. I that was that. that was just the rule for wilderness areas. 
So the only way in was on foot. And we put together a four-person tiger team uh, accompanied by a couple people from Alaska Fish and Wildlife, uh, one of whom had a rifle with him because it was bear country. Mm-hmm. And and they knew the area? Did they act as guides? Well, they too? didn't know the area. Uh, we, we, we could mark on a map where the wreck was because you could see it from the air. Right. But it's not like there was any kind of a trail to it. You just had to go up the mountainside. And, and that mountainside was kind of like a, a vertical rainforest. It's oh just uh, tangled and, and swampy and extremely difficult going. But these guys, I wasn't on that trip. And uh, I'm. <laughs> what time of year? I didn't envy them at all. Was it midsummer? Yeah, it, it was in the summer when they went up there. And the weather, well, I think they had a little bit of rain. But the weather wasn't the problem. It was just the terrain. I can they, imagine. They had to fly in as close as they could in a de Havilland beaver on floats uh. and go ashore and then. Head up the up the mountainside, and they did. Took them like a day and a half to get up to the wreck site. Wow! But it was pretty much intact, incredibly so, really. And they were able to examine and actually salvage bits of dados from the airplane. Oh. There were dados in Electras, but they didn't look like what we had. Oh! They were very thin aluminum that was riveted to the underlying structure. The, the, the struts on the... The, or the bulkheads that, uh. that were there. However, that particular Electra was unique in one respect in that it had a fuselage fuel tank installed because the airplane had been used to ferry company employees for the company that owned it from the uh, Seattle-Vancouver area up to Ketchikan. Hmm. And it's a long haul, too long for an Electra. So they had installed this extra fuel tank, just one, in the fuselage. Most Electras didn't have a fuselage fuel tank. Uh Uh, Earhart's airplane and the other 10E Special were the only Electras that had fuselage fuel tanks, except for this one. Did you know that before? Before... We... I think we knew that this thing had a fuselage fuel tank, hmm. but it was just a curiosity to us. Oh, that's right. interesting that, that they did this. Well, when the guys got up there poking around in the wreckage, they noticed that that tank had been insulated from the heater ducts that run along the floor line ah. to heat the passenger cabin. Because right. in a passenger airplane, you have to heat the cabin. And it was... Uh, the hot air off a cuff around the exhaust manifold. So mm-hmm. it was hot air that was blown down these heater ducts. But that, that's a problem if you have fuel lines in a fuel tank there because you don't want the fuel lines getting <laughs> hot because it'll, it'll cause vapor lock. Uh, sure. So they had insulated that fuel tank from the heater ducts with big mats of asbestos, big heavy oh. stuff. They actually brought back both the dados that weren't like what we had, but also they brought back some of this asbestos matting. I've I've still got it. Really? <laughs> now it it it's, was in a fiber form. 
Yeah, yeah. It's it's like a mat. Yeah. yeah. So could um, could you see how it was attached? They took photographs of how okay. it was attached. It was just like tacked up there. It was huh. just laid out. Okay, so that was verification that if you're going to put fuselage tanks in an Electra, you've got to insulate them from the heater ducts. Well, Earhart's plane had heater ducts, and they worked. She had to have heat in the cabin, too, sure. because the navigator was going to be back there. Hmm. So they had to do something, and those asbestos mats were way too heavy if you're going to do the whole cabin. Uh-huh. You, you, you can't do that. And there's no indication they, they did. We, we have pictures of the cabin of the Electra before the fuselage tanks were installed. Hmm. And there's no asbestos mats. But there is what's called a false floor installed. A wooden floor that was on top of the standard plywood floor of an Electra that was covered with linoleum. And this was just a plain plywood floor on top of that. Along the edges by the heater ducts, there was a, a strip of wood. For what purpose? Well, we reasoned that maybe what we have are custom-built heat shields. Hmm. The one we the what we have been calling a dado that we found in 1989 was still very much intact, and on what would be the interior wall of this 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 sheet of aluminum, there was a fragment of surviving fragment of quarter inch kapok used as insulation. Uh, that Is that was, a sheet? Well, kapok. I'm. Yeah, yeah, Kapok is uh, cork insulation. Okay. They used to use it in life preservers. So uh, flexible. Flotation. Well, it's not flexible so much, but this would just be a a sheet of quarter-inch Kapok that was glued Uh. to this aluminum surface. And on top of that was a, a blue woven fabric, probably wool covering. And I'm talking the surviving piece was smaller than your thumbnail hmm. that was still caught on one of the uh, uh, attach uh, fixtures to the thing. Uh, the, the National Transportation Safety Board lab managed to lose that. Oh, you're kidding. The, when they had the thing. That doesn't um, sound like something a lab would do. <laughs> well, we were rather disappointed that they lost <laughs> it. But we've got good pictures of it, both mm. when it was in place. And the bottom of this, what we used to call dados and now thought might be heat shields, has a right angle flange that very clearly was nailed to something. Not screwed, uh. not riveted, but nailed. Hmm. And there are marks where somebody had pried it up, like with a screwdriver or something, to to remove it. Oh, interesting. And we went, what the heck was this thing? Well, now we had a hypothesis, a theory, that, okay, we know the heater ducts have to be insulated from the tanks. This thing with the KPOC would provide insulation, and there was a strip in the photograph of the airplane when the tanks were out of it 
that showed a strip that it might have been nailed to. Hmm. And another thing that was really interesting was that examining the the records of Earhart's airplane. It was delivered with all these fuselage tanks in it and a whole fuel system. And that was delivered to her on her birthday, July 24th, 1936. But almost immediately, within one flight after that, the airplane went back in the shop and all those tanks came out. Really? And that's when they installed... The, the, the false floor, uh, and that's when the pictures we have were taken. Oh, interesting. Okay. And that actually created all kinds of confusion because there was also a mix-up when Earhart registered her newly de- delivered airplane with the Bureau of Air Commerce. She mistakenly tried to register it NR16020, N meaning the airplane's approved for international flight, R means it's in the restricted category because it won't be carrying passengers and it's got this special modification. Well, it had not been approved for international flight. She needed to register it in the restricted category, just R. And when she redid the application, happened to be when the fuselage tanks were out of the airplane. So the inspection report for the new application had the airplane listed as just having the standard in-the-wings fuel for an Electra. And so the airworthiness certificate that was issued for the airplane Doesn't only permitted that. it to have yeah. a few hundred gallons of gas. Oh. And nobody realized it at the time. Oh, no. And and it was months later before, the, the, before it was Earhart's mechanic, Bo McNeely, who said, wait a minute, this isn't right. <laughs> And they had to go back and do a whole new inspection of the airplane with the tanks in to do it. Wow. Anyway, we we know that there was we knew there's something wrong with the initial uh, installation of the tanks Hmm. that had to be corrected by putting in this false floor with the strip that we think this insulation. We think the whole problem was vapor lock because they hadn't insulated the tanks. That's when they discovered it was a problem. But that's all theory. These objects that we found on Nicomararo didn't have a part number, which is odd, because yeah. if it's from some unknown part of a World War II airplane, it should have a part number stamped in it in several places, but it doesn't. And were they all alike, the ones you found, all the same size? Not all same... the same size. They were all the same height. This would be like okay. a, a little freestanding wall uh-huh. that was simply nailed so to the floor. these were just braces for the, to hold the wall? To hold the second floor? No, no, no. These these were nailed. These were above the the, the false floor. Okay. So you you have the standard electric floor, mm-hmm. and then a false floor on top of that, and then along the edge, a little, a few inches out, you have this strip that we think mm-hmm. these heat shields were nailed to is just like this little wall of insulating uh, panels. Right. That. Huh. Once the fuel tanks are installed, we have pictures of the cabin when the tanks are installed. You can't see them because the tanks are in the way. Right. Very maddening. You know, it's theoretical, it's speculative, but it makes a lot of sense. Hmm. And it's still that way. We think we've got heat shields from the Electra, but we can't prove it. So at this point, we've got a whole new idea about our artifacts based on the inspection of the airplane in Alaska. 
but there's not much we can do with it. We we can't prove anything from it. Right. If if they were dados and they were exactly like dados, we could say, hey, we've got an Electra dado. But that wasn't the case. <laughs> we got something else that is actually more interesting, but we can't prove it. <laughs> okay. Well, what what else do we have? Well, we got this piece of plexiglass that seems to match the cabin windows in a Lockheed mm. Electra, but we can't prove that either. And then we've got our sheet of aluminum, Artifact 22V1, oh, right. that we think is from an Electra, but we can't match it to anything on a standard Electra. There's no place that the rivet pattern exactly matches a standard Lockheed Electra, but we reason that, well, hers was damaged and then repaired, and we don't know for sure how the repairs were done, so maybe this is from a repaired part. But again, that's theoretical. We we don't have engineering orders that specify the rivet pattern. Hmm. So again, we're in the we're in the same place. We <laughs> got an artifact but we, that yeah, we it makes just, sense. That makes can, sense yep. that and we can't find any other airplane that it does match. So God, we're we're kinda in limbo. Um, we're kinda stuck. At a dead end with our with our artifacts. So by December of 2004, we had all that information from the inspection of the Alaska wreck and the reasoning about the, the, the heat shields. In 2005, I was mostly occupied writing a book that was originally going to be called The Suitcase in My Closet. <laughs> and that's from a quote from Betty's Notebook where Amelia was heard to say, George, get the suitcase in my closet, California. And it seems to match a letter she wrote to her mother about some papers that she wanted destroyed in the event of her death. And we thought that referred to it. It's, it's an example of what appears to be occult information in Betty's notebook, information that Betty couldn't possibly have known. Kind of like her... New York, New York, right. New York City, and yeah. it seems to be Norwich City, the British shipwreck. My so, original thought was to write a book strictly about the post-loss radio signals, which are such strong evidence that Earhart did not go down at sea and did end up on Nicomaro. And I was able to conclude a, a book contract with the Naval Institute Press. They're like the University of Press for the Naval Academy. Wow. Very high credibility. Based on the suitcase in my closet? Yeah, the, the, the original, the radio, radio the original proposal, proposal and contract was for a book called The Suitcase in My Closet. But as I got into writing the book, it soon became apparent that there was much more to talk about. Hmm. And we expanded that to cover the entire period from the construction of the airfield on Howland Island through Earhart's disappearance and then the 1937 government search. And we ended it there, when she disappeared and uh-huh. what happened next. And the name of that book was Finding Amelia, The True Story of the Earhart Disappearance. That was published in September of 2006. So I spent virtually all of 2005 writing like mad, doing the research, getting this thing out. And uh, it was published September 2006 and did really well. And we hoped that that was going to generate publicity mm. that would help us raise money to do the next expedition. Is that book 
available? Finding Amelia went through five printings in hard copy, uh-huh. and then they put it out in soft cover. It's still available in soft cover on Amazon oh, and cool. available uh, directly from from Tiger through our website, signed by the author. <laughs> uh, yeah, that's it, cool. It did really, really well. It, it was the it was the Naval Institute's top seller in the really? next in two thousand seven. <laughs> yeah, that's exciting. Yeah. We're planning this expedition. This next expedition that we wanted to take place in the summer of 2007, we needed to expand the search of what we called the Seven Site, which we had pretty much confirmed was the castaway campsite where the bones had been found in 1940. And we also wanted to do a detailed excavation of the old village of the the British colony because that's where we had found the heat shields ah. in 2003 while the guys were looking for what we came to call the Wheel of Fortune <laughs> that <laughs> had been there in the uh, the main lagoon passage, but had been apparently washed away by a, a storm before the guys could get back. The, and you did verify that there was a big storm in between the time that... Oh, yeah. That yeah, and, and it was very apparent. You. When our team got there in 2003, the the wheel was seen by the New England Aquarium expedition in 2002. We got a team back out there in 2003, but in that short interim, there had been a storm that just tore the daylights out of that wow. the the shores of that passage and the main passage, and apparently washed away the wheel. And we wondered, well, where's the wheel? Maybe it's up there, washed ashore. Washed ashore. Yeah. So we need to do a much more detailed search of that whole area than the guys could do in 2003. It was inconceivable to us that they happened to find the only pieces of aluminum that were there. (laughs) Right. And we also were investigating the possibility of using a two-seat submarine, manned submersible, called Deep Flight Aviator. This thing was fascinating. They developed this thing initially for sale to private individuals who wanted their own submarine <laughs> to have fun with. Hmm. And it was it was a very different concept. Of course, we wanted to use it to search for airplane wreckage. But the, the way the thing worked was uh, not like a conventional submarine where you actually sink the boat and drive around underwater and then make the boat float again Mm -hmm. to come back to the surface. This thing flew underwater. It had dive planes on it that you got it to like neutral, slightly positive buoyancy, and then you forced it underwater. Uh-huh. And and it would stay underwater as you as as long as it kept uh, moving right, because the, going it, it's like a shark. It it had to keep moving mm-hmm. to stay underwater. But then if anything went wrong, whoop, it would come back up to the surface, <laughs> which is a good thing. Yeah. Well, there are some drawbacks to doing that if you're going to search for airplane parts with it because you can't stop and hover like you can good point. with like a, a remote operated vehicle that has. Uh, conventional thrusters on it that kind of thing and reverse and reverse and so (laughs) forth but we were looking into that and naya the ship we wanted to use was willing to modify their dive deck on the back of the ship 
to accommodate this sub. We're oh. really excited about it. But I was getting a lot of pushback from our archaeologist who didn't want to spend any time doing anything underwater. He was a land archaeologist and he thought we should be concentrating on searching on land in the old village for more debris that might have been washed ashore and at the seven site. He was afraid that any attention spent on the underwater search would deflect resources from the land search. We went back and forth and back and forth about this. Ultimately, we decided against using the manned submersible, not for those reasons, but because it really wasn't practical for detailed searching. You could spot something as you went by. Yes. You know? But, but that's you not good enough. And there, there was no way to put a, a grappling claw yeah. on it like you can with an ROV. So we couldn't recover anything hmm. with it. And also, you have to be very careful when you talk about putting people down deep in a submersible. Because if you're using a remote operated vehicle that's just attached to the surface with an umbilical, if things go sideways down there, yeah, you're going to lose an expensive piece of equipment. But... If things go wrong, when you've got people down there, they're going to die. Hmm. And that has always been our primary concern. I've always said it's not worth hurting life people to look for dead ones. <laughs> we don't do anything that's more dangerous than we need to do to, hmm. to accomplish our mission. So we decided we'll, we'll go with scuba divers only. We know scuba divers. They can only go just so deep. We've used divers before, but we'll look again. We'll do what we can with divers. So that was the plan. NICU 5 was going to be planned for July 3rd to August 3rd, full month, 2007. The total expedition cost was going to be $217,000. We paid a $6,000 deposit on Naya, and they reserved the time for us. And as usual, we had no idea where the rest of the money was going to come from. We had only raised a fraction of the money that was was going to take. But we'd been there before. Mm. We'd raised the money before, so we pressed forward. Half of the charter... $105,500 $105,500 was going to have to be paid by the 1st of January, 2007. And if we couldn't make that payment and had to cancel the charter, we'd lose the $6,000 deposit. Wow. So there was money at stake here. Well, we were hoping that my book, Finding Amelia, would generate the publicity that would help raise the money. But the problem we ran into uh, there in, in the fall of, 2006, as we're trying to raise this money, is that the Iraq war Uh. was dominating the headlines because everything was going to hell. There were no WMDs and there was a civil war and it had turned into the disaster that it did. And that was dominating the news. We we couldn't get any traction. It's hard to compete with that. No. No. And so by December, we weren't even close to having the over $100,000 we were going to need to uh, keep the, 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 the charter alive. But right at that time, uh, as things often happen with this project, something totally unexpected happened. One of our researchers noticed an item on eBay advertised as Amelia Earhart's original flight plan. Oh. Well, heck, we all knew that. There was no flight plan. 
<laughs> she did not fire LaFlame plan. There, there couldn't be something like that. <laughs> so he said, eh, they're not asking for much. I'll put in a bid. And it, it was a few dollars. And he won it. And he <laughs> it, it arrived in the mail. And what arrived was a collection of wire service stories and newspaper clippings about her heart's disappearance. Whoop-de-doo. But also... <laughs> There was a typed verbatim manuscript of the personal diary kept by James Carey, the Associated Press correspondent aboard the Coast Guard cutter Itasca during the Earhart flight and disappearance and search. Really? We were floored. Wow. Nobody knew that Carey kept a diary. Here, after 70 years at that time, was a detailed, intimate, day-by-day account of how the men aboard Itasca lived, how they felt about Earhart, loony dame. Oh, seriously. <laughs> and the search, this never-ending search. Well, how, and what, how and, long a period was it that they were out there? How, how long? Uh-huh. Oh, God. Well, I, I okay, let's, let's think about that. Itasca was sent out there in time to be at Howland for Earhart's flight. And they, they were there uh, by like mid-June hmm. of 37 to help her. Yeah. And of course she didn't arrive and they were searching for her until the search was called off July 18th. So it just went on and on <laughs> and they weren't happy about that. Oh gosh. And Carrie also wrote about what the ship's officers were telling the press as opposed to what the logs reveal was really going on. Wow. We, we were getting the inside story here. On, on <laughs> and how... nobody had reported this before? or Nobody seen... knew this information because this was Carrie's own diary. And huh. uh, this was his own personal story. Wow. Ultimately. Was he writing all along? Uh, oh, yeah. Reporting? No. You, so you have no, it, it's dated. Official... Yeah. yeah. And... Of course, we, this was a typed transcription uh-huh. of what we knew had to have been a, a handwritten diary. Uh-huh. And so we wanted, okay, somebody's got the real thing, the, the diary from which this was transcribed. Uh-huh. And we were able to determine that although Jim Carrey was dead, his son, Tim Carrey, lived uh, in Ruston, Virginia, wow. down near, near Washington. And we got in touch with Tim and... He was thrilled to know that we had found that there was a transcription of his father's diary that he didn't know existed. Oh, wow. But he said, well, it might be in the stuff I have down in the basement because I've got all of his old stuff. And I know there's a whole bunch of stuff from the Earhart search. So another researcher and I went and spent a day with Jim and we (laughs) tore apart his basement and found the diary. Wow, the really? Diary. And he didn't, the son didn't really know well, he didn't, what was there? Whether he knew there was something there that was actually a diary that might be of interest to anybody. It's or, just or, all of his dad's old things. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> his dad's old things. Yeah. So we were able to confirm that this what was in the transcription was was true. It really had been written down. Wow, I wonder who did it. And he had other notes that weren't in the diary, just handwritten notes, because... Jim Carrey was in the radio room when Earhart was approaching Howland Island and being heard on the radio. Um, And what he wrote in his notes conflicts to what was in the radio log. 
and in some minor respects. And mostly it has to do with the very first time they heard Earhart, which was like at 2.45 in the morning, their time. Uh. They were listening for Earhart on her frequency. They expected to hear from her. And the first time it came through, there was just something on her frequency that the chief radio man that was listening on his earphones, because mm -hmm. it wasn't on the speaker at that time. It was just on earphones. And he could hear somebody transmitting on 3105. He could hear her voice, but he couldn't make out when she, what she was saying. Oh. Carrie says that he heard the transmission and he heard her say, weather overcast. And the log doesn't say that, just as unintelligible. Oh. Well, if Carrie heard anything directly from Earhart, it had to be because the radio operator passed him the headphones. Interesting. And he happened to be listening when something did come through. That could be understood. It could be understood. Well, weather overcast. Well, that's extremely important because if the weather was overcast, it means that Noonan could not get star sightings to keep them on course. Right. That had never been known before. So uh. this was a tremendous discovery. And we said, gosh, you know, this is dynamite stuff. Um, and after confirming that it was legitimate, we contacted the Associated Press thinking, well, they might be interested. I mean, this, really? this like, was their guy, uh, Jim Carrey. Yeah, was and their what, guy. Great, what great publicity <laughs> for them. AP was just not was not just interested. They were thrilled. <laughs> the, I, I can imagine. They were. I I spent a day at their main office in Manhattan with their senior people, planning how to release the news. That's that so cool. Because we had had this problem breaking through the publicity with yeah. the Iraq War. And they said, no, 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 we'll, we can take care of this, man. <laughs> One of their top journalists, a guy named Richard Pyle, um, who had been the bureau chief in Saigon at the time of oh. the fall of Saigon. Wow. Man, the stories Richard had. But I got to know him really well. And he and I worked together. He was to write a, a feature story about the discovery of the diary and how it validates the book I just wrote. Yeah. <laughs> and how Tiger's expedition the following summer might at last find the conclusive proof that will solve the Earhart mystery. <laughs> but of course, only if we can complete the budget. AP is going to carefully pick when to release a story to catch a slow news day to get maximum coverage. Man, we couldn't ask for a better fundraising partner than the world's largest, most respected news organization. Seriously. Out there trying to help us raise money. <laughs> that just doesn't happen. Wow. They also wanted to put Richard aboard the uh, the ship with us and a photographer oh, wow. for the expedition. And, of course, they would pay his way uh, to do that. And so our, our fundraising prospects couldn't have been better. We yeah. also had a couple of sponsored team member applications that uh, looked promising. But this time the cavalry arrived too late. Oh no. This really? was happening in late December. We just didn't have time to implement all of this. And although our fundraising prospects were great, you can't take prospects to the bank. Right. Naya uh, is a business. They had to do what they had to do. And we couldn't make the required payment. And on January 3rd, Naya canceled the charter. Wow. No hard feelings. 
but they had to do what they had to do. Really, really, that's a business. Well, so what did you do? <laughs> well, back in 1936, there was a, a popular Fred Astaire song. Nothing's impossible I have found For when my chin is on the ground <laughs> I pick myself up, dust myself off And start all over again <laughs> We'll talk about what we did in episode one of season seven of the Earhart Expeditions. Sounds great. Thank you, Rick. Thank you. Thanks for listening. The Earhart Expeditions is a serial history of Tiger's 12 expeditions to the South Pacific. We release a new episode each Tuesday. You can receive special bonus episodes and get access to Tiger's extensive video library by becoming a premium subscriber. Just go to Patreon, that's P-A-T-R-E-O-N, and search on Tiger, T-I-G-H-A-R. You can also be a part of the adventure and participate in research. Go to tiger.org and click on Join Tiger. See you next Tuesday.